Ladies and gentlemen, the following podcast contains coarse language, strong thematic themes, talk of history and context, terrible imitations of Hollywood figures, and an unbashed love of Hollywood's golden age. It also contains the ramblings of an unstable dork who has too much time on his hands. Listener discretion is advised. And now, on with the program. Okay, Zach, you're on the air. Bad news, boy. We have to go out again. <coughs> yes, I know it's rather annoying, but think about it. Years later, they'll talk about it on a podcast. <coughs> I don't know, some man from the British Isles and some dork who doesn't have his microphone turned the right way. <coughs> yes, I'm sure he'll be sick too, but we can't worry about the future, only the present. Come on, boy. What will he send to me, daddy? I'll send you Brano Gugini, the browest in the Yesteryear, Ballyhoo. Review. Good evening, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome, welcome, welcome to the Yesteryear Ballyhoo Review. Many great sights await inside the Picture Palace of the Past, and we have plenty of ways to talk about the things inside. So hurry and get your seats. Tonight, the Ballyhoo fulfills its destiny to put four of our prior legends in the same room. A rally not in execution, but in legacy. Many could say that having all of these valuable assets in the same picture was a wise decision. And now that this terrible routine is done, we can at last show you something far more horrendous than bad puns. Grave robbing! (laughs) While many would try to accuse this very show of that action every week, our exhuming of past figures is meant for fun and lessons, whereas the true horrors lie in the pure logic needed by it. Anatomists in the 1800s. And while we use textbooks and articles to exhume our long gone, Cabman Gray uses a shovel, a fierce grip of the victim's face, and a penchant for repetition that reminds us 
that no matter what we do, we will never be rid of him, never be rid of him, never be rid of him, never be rid of him. That's right, ladies and gents. Tonight, we treat you at last to a Val Luton production of a Robert Wise film with 1945's The Body Snatcher. So see the show and stay behind for a discussion to delight the earbuds. And I mean to report it. It's like Burke and Hare all over again. That is Grave robbing is one thing, but this is murder. You ordered this subject, received it here, and paid for it. That makes you a part of the murder. You must leave this house. I can't do that. You hurt McFarlane. Save yourself, Master Fetters. Look at McFarlane. Gray, I must be rid of you. You become a cancer, a malignant, evil cancer, rotting my mind. You'll never get rid of me, darling. that you've seen the show we will get to the talk of the day yes in between making isle of the dead luton and his team were able to through much struggle film this adaptation of the grizzly classic story by robert louis stevenson it would prove it would prove to be among the most fondly remembered experiences of director robert wise's career and the beginning of the end for val luton but no matter the tragedy that history tells of this production. We have a film and a story that teaches many lessons of how films are made and how dark subjects such as grave robbing are addressed to this very minute. In order to tell this tale properly, though, we shall have to resurrect a long-lost guest of the Ballyhoo. He is a musician and podcaster who can be heard in the brilliant audio atmospheres of Film Guff, Here Lies Amicus, and... Uh, I, I'm going to make sure I got this right. Condo of Carpentry Tools. Yes, I think I got that one right. Uh, among his most esteemed achievements, though, was living through all time before and after this recording and for being the podcaster of choice for Richard Johnson. Ladies and gentlemen, please welcome back the one and only Kev Moore. Good evening. <laughs> now, um, I, I am being told I am getting a wire here. It's not uh, Condo of Carpentry Tools. It is House of Hammer. Um and uh, and what's amazing is House of Hammer started around the time or was just about to kick off when we did Isle of the Dead last year. And now it is a bonanza hit. I'm talking spectacular hit. It has its own it has its own catchphrases like River Patrol sucks and other <laughs> other kind of memorable lines such as that. But. It, it really is a testament to film preservation and history because you are digging up films that people have not seen and have very little ability to see because 
The company that owns them is not particularly good at releasing their prior horror, prior to horror stuff. Oh, preserving them. Yeah, exactly. Uh, there are the the cut of uh, Death in High Heels that is in the Attaboy Clarence Library. Mm -hmm. uh, I like it. I do like it. I wish somebody would go in and try to clean that up, or at least give us a proper release of it and make a notation of like due to us fucking up this is the best quality that this is available in yada 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 um the worst one has to be the mystery of the Murray celeste that has bella lugosi in it because there's a, a whole reel missing from that which is really frustrating because there's a lot of plot that you've just got a massive hole for which is such a damn shame right and consequently though song of freedom it's pretty well preserved. Oh, you yeah. can find it pretty mm. easily, um, which it tends to be like <laughs> the reverse of what normally happens with African-American performers yeah. in African-American productions like that, that those things would go off to the side or be lost or super damaged. Um, but in this case, it's the opposite. And I think that's Paul Robeson's popularity is a huge part of that. Yeah. Um, but I wanted you to tell people what, house of hammer has coming up if if at all if there's any recent developments because a lot has changed not only is it a podcast but you also do virtual screenings and mm -hmm. uh fun little quizzes you want to tell uh, people a little bit more about what's going on in hammerland we've got lots of irons in the fire at the minute we've got um some uh, meetups planned uh a public screening uh, this is, is all pretty much in the sort of early planning stage at the minute because, let's face it, trying to find somewhere that's actually fully open at the minute seems to be a nightmare at the best of times. So, right, you know, trying to actually put on a screening as well. And then, of course, there's the question of geography as well. You know, finding a place that's sort of equidistant for everybody that's in the UK. Oh, I was going to say Denver, Colorado, but fine. Just leave it to the <laughs> aisle. That's fine. I'm, I'm not hurt. I'm not going to cry later tonight. <laughs> it's a hell of a commute. I'm sorry. You, you, well, you've got a gyrocopter, don't you? You you were in the 39 steps flying the gyrocopter. <laughs> there's only there's only one shot of it. We don't see the pilot. I can believe it's you. Um um what's but what's interesting within that too. And I've told Smokey about this is that the exposure that you're giving these films if you get a screening together It'll be the first time that they've been "quote unquote" theatrically 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 released yeah. since they came out, which is bonkers to think about. Hmm. Um, Some of these are going to be like eighty years old. Yeah, it it's it's kind of astounding to think that. Like <clears throat> we're doing Jacques Tati at the moment, and Playtime apparently did not get a proper U.S. distribution. And really, yeah, I mean, well, I've seen a report that it's there. Hmm. But it's like so infinitesimal, like hmm. it would have never had the same exposure as Holiday or uh, Mon Oncle. Yeah. So what what uh, Sterling and I are planning on is trying to find a way to screen one of his films at one of our local theaters that we have here, independent theaters. Um, and we're either going to I'm I'm pitching for either playtime or to do a Jacques Tati short film festival where we just literally play that Criterion disc of his short films and then do a live episode there. Um, so that's an announcement for people. But in all seriousness, trying to find a home for these places, uh, for these films that have not had a place in years, it's quite an achievement, sir. Um, mm. And of course, 
Adam making a good chunk of them available in the library is very helpful for those who want to watch it. Thankfully, some of them are on YouTube, and Hammer even has one of them yeah. um, on their site, which I can't remember the title of which one it was. But <laughs> might be something to do with boats. Oh, oh, River Patrol. And, that's and right. Tights. Yeah. Yeah. And for listeners who might be wondering, why are they talking about River Patrol? Well, <laughs> you need to listen to House of Hammer, but this is a film that deeply divided the crew, and uh, to my fanboy estimation, nearly broke up the band, as it were. It was like the Yoko oh. Ono of the <laughs> Hammer Boys. Um, and, and, and that's when Kev and Smokey were wearing fedoras and smoking cigarettes and going like, <laughs> this is garbage. <laughs> but um, we're not here to talk about Hammer, uh, although... Some someday we will do it and do it in a way that won't step on the toes of of, of <laughs> our lovely uh, friends from House of Hammer. But we are here to talk about another gentleman, uh, which requires me to step on the toes of one of our friends, mutual friends, Adam Roach. Uh, we're talking about Val Luton again, um, and we're going to the body snatcher. Um, now, before we get into it, um, I have to uh, I've been advised by the law firm of Hunga Dunga, Hunga Dunga, Hunga Dunga and McCormick. Uh, to give this uh, brief statement. All right. The Ballyhoo is about to tackle Val Luton. There are better ways of tackling Val Luton, including the secret history of Hollywood's series Shadows. In no way should you mistake our buffoonery for Val- for Adam Roach's brilliance. How dare you do that? Stop drinking and go home and get some rest. It, do you really think that James Stewart telling the story of the body snatcher is going to be better than the countless amounts of pure detail that you'll get from Secret History of Hollywood combined with the voice of Mark Gatiss? Absolutely not. Go home. You're fucking drunk. Now that I've said that, I'm going to have Jimmy Stewart tell us the story of the body snatcher. Well, it's the story of graves digging, being dug up, and, um, uh, well, Boris is just like a mean old monster, but arguably Henry Danielle is a worse person, and that's my review. <laughs> so, um, yeah, no, um, <clears throat> this is actually... In a lot of ways, the completion of a trilogy that started with The Haunting, because we started by talking Bob Wise, Mm. and then we talked about Val Luton, and now we have him in the same room. Um, As a fan of The Haunting from an early age, I know we talked about your first exposure to Val Luton, but do you have any recollection of the first time you saw this particular film, The Body Snatcher? Um, This is fairly recent uh, memory, to be honest. I think this is in the last five years or so. Um, it's just one of those films that it's always been one of those that I needed to see. You know, I knew quite a lot about it. Unlike the Isle of the Dead. Um, if you're not too sure, listen again to your Isle of the Dead show because mm-hmm. um, we covered that quite uh, Yes, we did. There's a there's an issue with getting proper copies of Luton uh, to there you is. guys. Mm. Yeah. Although, actually, I found out recently that you can you you can't you. It's not that you can't get those. It's just that it's a arm and a leg mm. to get it shipped over there, and or they're not. Sh- yeah, and they're not shipping, and or they're not shipping them at all. Like Criterion had this mm-hmm. issue, which I was shocked because you'd think that the films that Criterion releases, which arguably still survive because of Europe- European influence and adoration. They would make those available in the UK more readily, but apparently not so much. Well, there's such a huge um, chunk of the Criterion catalogue that is European in nature and source, you know. So it's ridiculous that they then try and ignore the rest of the world and stick to North America. It's just a bizarre move. Janus Films for you, I guess. Yeah, 
I mean, I can't. Like, I don't want to judge. And like, and I don't, <laughs> don't want to. You've got him. <laughs> <laughs> I am advantageous in that front, but. <laughs> I will say that you guys have Dawn of the Dead from 1974 in a 4K disc, so mm. we we each have something that the other wants. <laughs> yeah. um, and uh, I uh, no, uh, for 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 those who uh, don't like who may be confused too, we're talking about restoration and specifically copies of physical media getting over because I think. Streaming might be an option for some of these films. Um, no, I double checked. No, no um, Amazon mm. Prime have a, a ropey copy that you can sort of rent. Ew, um, ew. Yeah, but that's about no. it. Hmm. That's not how you do that. No, you buy a physical copy or you have a file somewhere. Hmm. Um, but uh, The Body Snatcher, though, is one that has huge pedigree behind it, so that's why it's surprising that it's tough to find because yeah. it's not only Boris Karloff and Bela Lugosi, it's Bob Wise, it's Val Luton, it's Henry Danielle. And, you know, I, I don't know how you solve the problem. I mean, the best that I could offer is like sending over copies of those Blu-rays, but at the end of the day, a company needs to actually get it done because it's important to the widest exposure possible. Yeah. And frankly, it's arguable that Adam and Adam, by the way, listening through his pillow right now, uh, the same pillow from all the best lines um, <laughs> in, in shyness. Adam's series made Val Luton a valuable commodity in the UK to a, to a large degree. Arguably, because of the influence he's had, it would make sense for companies to start putting him out there. Yeah. And I don't get it. I don't get it at all. Um, it's definitely easier for Screen Factory and Criterion to work out an idea, but not necessarily here. Um, and within that, I'll kind of talk about my first exposure because it's the same as last time, which is I watched all those Val Luton films in the original Warner Brothers set that, uh, existed. And, uh, this was one of the last ones I got to, but it was one of my favorites and stayed my favorite for years. And a lot of it has to do with Boris and Bella. Um, I'm, I'm unabashedly a Bela Lugosi fan. Obviously, I like Karloff. Even if I can get one scene with them together, it's worth the weight in gold that it has. Mm. Um, And even in listening to Shadows, I was still perplexed by the amount of trouble this film had. Like, it really shocked me. It genuinely shocked me. Um, And now that we've done bios on Bob and Val... Um, we can kind of just jump right into the production of this film. Mm. Um, this uh, comes at around the time when Jack J. Gross is uh, heading up the Lawton unit after coming off of associate producer roles on the Phantom of the Opera, the color version that is awful. Trash. Uh, yeah, trash. <laughs> you, you, you said the polite word. I said the real word, yeah. <laughs> which is trash. Um, and so uh, uh, Jack Gross is a asshole. Yeah, yeah, he he really wanted to push into the popularity of Universal, and instead Luton fought him. Luton fought him hard. Boris fought Jack Gross. And what's sad, in a sense, is that Bela Lugosi's involvement only comes from Jack Gross. And so I'm torn. On the one hand, I hate the man. On the other hand, he's the reason we got at least one more Lugosi Karloff team up movie. This was the last one, wasn't it? Yes, it is. This mm. is the last one. And there is a segment 
in Adam's podcast where he has an exchange between Boris and Bella that makes me cry every time I listen to it because mm-hmm. Bella goes, it will nice it will be nice to feel strong again like a young man. And I was listening to it this morning and I'm sick from food poisoning, ladies and gentlemen. So the tears were both from that and from thinking about Boris and Bella's friend, quote unquote, acting relationship. Mm. Um, But additionally, this film also went through a lot of issues with the censors. Um, Needless to say, the subject of grave robbing uh, is a dicey proposition. And it kind of makes sense. I know we were talking about this off mic, but it does make sense that this is the first time that Mm. the story of Burke and Hare was ever addressed because I don't think anybody wanted to touch it up until then. But it's not exactly like it's a too soon kind of situation. The Birkenhair was 1828. It's not like 9-11 starring Nicolas Cage about two years after 9-11. Uh, no, well, that was Nicolas five Cage. years, but I get your point. Yeah, it was Nicolas Cage <laughs> and five years and Oliver Stone. But I get mm. your point. Yeah. United 93 came out a year after, it- or the same year, mm. no, the same year. Yeah, that's right. Is it just the same that the Scots just don't forget or something? You know, they they just have real grudges against it. I don't know. I will say too. The additional thing is that Burke and Hare is a is a. I think it's a tale that doesn't have a lot of exposure even to this day. Period. Mm. Um, Kev, you're a little bit more versed in this. Can you break down Burke and Hare for the fine folks at Ballyhoo? Well, Burke and Hare basically started off by um, cutting out the middleman, if you like. That's what really broke their business. Um, They were in the business of grave robbing and selling the corpses to medical science because they'd be being used as medical research. And once one of, I think it was, now I might have this the wrong way around, but I think it was Burke's um, place. What was it? Uh, no, I, I believe it was, it was Burks. Yeah. 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 yeah it was oh, no, no, no. It, it was, um, uh, let's was... see. Maggie, Maggie Laird, um, mm-hmm. who would be, uh, Hare's Hare's, wife. Hare's wife. Yeah. And yeah. They owned like a, um, if you like a, a squat kind of place, you know, just a, a block of houses. And, mm-hmm. um, once the tenants started to die rather than them actually, um, get them any any sort of burial or anything like that that would just sell the corpses now right burke and her actually managed to um then step it up a little bit and um get fresh corpses which mm-hmm. you know means basically these are recently deceased people then how did they how did they kill them kev birking yeah birking <laughs> 16 the- people in 10 months no nor did they handle axe or knife to take away their victims life Mm. they would smother the victims with one hand held over the mouth and nostrils ghastly stuff ghastly Um, james mason says it's ghastly (laughs) (laughs) they just make sure that the um victim was you know inebriated and you know completely powerless to sort of fight back Um, Mm -hmm. or there would be too weak to fight back because these two guys were pretty stocky, you know. And uh, so you're saying Smokey needs to watch his back. <laughs> <laughs> Only after a few Galahads. Yeah. What's that? Simon Pegg and Andy Circus. What are you doing? Oh, ah, ah. see, that's the thing. We we should really touch on the Burke and Hare 
cinematic um, legacy for what it is because this is the first time they actually get a mention in cinema um right but then there's only about maybe four or five there's the flesh and the fiends which was 1950 mm-hmm. uh which is peter cushing and donald pleasance donald pleasance doing a fantastic scottish accent as well um yeah that's possibly the only one that does actually sound like it's based in scotland um there's also um a really... there's a television film from 1966 by toby robertson yeah then there's one from 1972 which stars darren nesbitt and oh glenn something glenn johns which is one that you watched not too long ago. yes yeah, yeah. darren nesbitt actually nails it because um he plays Burke and Burke was an Irish navvy. So he plays it with an Irish accent, which is perfect, you know, mm-hmm. but unfortunately Glyn Johns is a Cockney and he can do no other accent. So him playing a Scottish labourer just doesn't work. <laughs> <laughs> but it's still better than <laughs> Peg later on. Right. In- yeah. And then, and then of course the most recent one would be John Landis's uh, Burke and Hare yeah. Comedy, which really does a slapsticky version of it, like very mm. dark comedy in the Landis vein, changing a lot of the facts and making these two f- characters lovable, which is. I'm not going to lie, I found it a little bit unnerving watching it. Like it's 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 very difficult yeah, to process. Yeah, it's, it's like the Yorkshire Ripper, the musical, you know, it's just not going to happen. It shouldn't happen. <laughs> 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 the Brighton Strangler, the Oratorio. Like these are these are things that should never be done because they're too tasteless. <laughs> mm, um yeah. but um and the tastelessness of this story, which sees Burke and Hare finally being caught. Hare um and his wife get out on King's uh King's ruling. Or yeah. King's ruling. So they basically, yeah, they bargained it out, whereas Burke was hung, Mm. dissected, and his skeleton is at the University of Edinburgh to this very day. Uh, And Robert Louis Stevenson was enamored by the story. He once said that uh, when he was drawn to these seedier tales, he said, ugly actions in ugly places, which have the true romantic quality and become an undying property of their scene. In the low dens and the high-flying garrets of Edinburgh, People may go back upon dark passages in the town's adventures and chill their marrow with writer's tales about the fire. And he started drafting it in 1881 in June and July and then put the story away because it was laid aside in a justifiable disgust, the tale being too horrid. But then he owed Paul Mall Gazette a story. <laughs> so he resurrected <laughs> it for their Christmas issue in, in 1884. This well, is the, that makes sense. Is this the best the, Christmas novel then? <laughs> well, no, it, it, it does make sense as far as a Christmas theme because the trial of Burke and Hare started on Christmas Eve, 1828. Ah, okay. I thought this was just absolutely tasteless on their account. Much like oh, no, fr- apparently we just celebrate Christmas in a very strange way in Scotland. Yeah, very Puritan <laughs> over here in uh, America and even the UK. Scotland just don't give a fuck. Um, and you know what? Good for them. I appreciate them that. Um, but Stevenson refused to republish this story in any of his collections during his lifetime. So he never republished this, but it gets out, falls into the hands of Val Luton at a young age. Um, and he carries it with him enough to 
get Jack J. Gross to sign off on it. This is from the memo dated Wednesday, May 10th, 1944. Subject to your approval, we have decided upon R.L. Stevens' body snatcher as the possible subject for the second Karloff picture. The story needs development because, as it's told now, the character we would like Karloff to play is fragmented like one called Gray. But if you will read the story, we will see the possibility of developing Gray into a truly horrendous person. You probably want to know the reasons for our selection of this story above the others. They are as follows. 1. The title seems good to us. 2. There's exploitation value in the use of famous writers like Robert Louis Stevenson and this classic. 3. There's a 90% chance that this is in the public domain. The legal department is now searching the title. <laughs> Four, the characters are colorable. The background of the medical life in the 1830s is extremely fascinating. The sets are limited in number, but effective in type. The costumes are readily procurable and no great difficulties of any sort so far as production are concerned are evident. Number five, there's also an excellent part for Bella Lugosi as a resurrection man. Now, hold on a minute. Hmm. Lugosi does not play a resurrection man. <laughs> <laughs> no. He plays he plays an elderly manservant. To, a retainer. Yeah, on retainer, yeah. Well, he is going to blackmail them eventually. We'll get to it in the plot. But uh, on Wednesday, May the 18th, Karloff approving of both Isle of the Dead and Body Snatcher signs a two-picture, over-30-page star contract. And then Isle of the Dead began filming on July the 4th. And then eight days later, production shut down because Karloff was hospitalized for Bragg problems. And as Karloff mended, Luton continued developing Body Snatcher for him. And Gross was very insistent on getting it done as fast as possible to not waste time. Because Isle of the Dead had people on the crew that were otherwise booked on other productions. So they had to find something to fill the time, which seems like the reason Robert Wise is brought into this as opposed to Mark Robeson. Wise had done Curse of the Cat People after replacing another director um, on the set and shot for 10 days, essentially. And he's even said it's hard to tell sometimes which ones I shot and which one Gunther shot. But one thing's for sure... The fights that Luton had with Gross are just mental torture. Mental torture mm. of a insidious nature that makes Gross very irredeemable in the legacy of Val Luton. Um, <clears throat> Kev, I'm wondering, from your perspective as a creative, how frustrating is it if somebody were to tell you that you've got to keep rewriting this and rewriting this or re remixing a song or re-editing a song until it gets right. It would drive you absolutely nuts because you, you kind of compartmentalize, you know, you get, you get to a point where you think that work is done. I've, I've finished that. I'm signed off. I'm moving on mm -hmm. to have somebody then saying, no, you're not quite great. Can you do it as a disco mix? And you're thinking it's, it's a fucking waltz. <laughs> It, it would just drive you absolutely nuts. You'll never get rid of me. Dun, dun, dun. <laughs> dun, 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 dun. <laughs> I actually listened to that again uh, yesterday, and I was listening to the um, way that he dubs it, and I thought, is that actually a tape loop? But then I thought, no, it can't be, because tape loops weren't around 
No. And that is just a performance. Yeah. No, he's saying it super fast and side by side, mm. too. Um, mm-hmm. And I, I think that Karloff said he wanted to do this role to show people that he was more than just a monster. This role in particular. Mm. <laughs> so much so that when Gross was creating issues for Val, Val's wife called Boris and Boris interceded to Jack Gross on his behalf. And thus the first draft, which was constructed by Philip McDonald and then Carlos Keith, who is actually Val Luton. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Great fucking name for a pseudonym. Carlos Keith. Mystery man. He sounds like a gunslinger. <laughs> he should be in a Sergio Leone movie that never got made. Definitely. I agree. Mm. Um, so that being said, film commences underway and then they end up releasing the body snatcher first before Isle of the Dead. And within that, we can kind of jump into the plot right now, Kev, unless there's anything from the production end that you wanted to address. Just the opening sequence where everything's all establishing shots of um, Edinburgh. Edinburgh? That's how you say it, isn't it? Edinburgh. <laughs> yeah. But all these establishing shots of Edinburgh are nowhere near Edinburgh. It's just basically random shots of somewhere in England. It's it's um and it's actually the RKO lot um in the San Fernando Valley. So it's <laughs> yeah, sense. it's it's uh these RKO films were done with whatever sets they had access to, uh, and refurbishing them according to the needs of the story. So that's why it looks the way it looks. Uh-huh. And, you're, and you're right. We open up uh, on this film. It's Edinburgh in 1831. We start our journey through this blossoming town. A blind singer is finding alms by singing her song, her haunting song that will come haunted even more later. Um, mm-hmm. And we meet Fetty's uh, at the graveyard who's just hanging out with a dog. Um, Fetty's changes a lot from the story, changes a lot from the story. Um, he's a lot more menacing in the original short story. Here he is, your leading man archetype. Um, yeah, he's, he's like your way in, if you like. You know, he's, he's like the audience surrogate. Because let's face it, you are surrounded by irredeemable characters. There's only really Fetis or Meg, who is um, the wife, that yes. are the people you could get on board with. Yeah, um, and and let's talk about Meg for a second because her story mm. becomes more prevalent later. But is there a reason explicitly said why uh, Toddy hides her existence as her as his wife? Not that I can see. No, no I can't remember the. It's it's a very strange move. You know, the reason I bring up Meg is because we're dealing with a film centered around guilt in some form or fashion. Um, it permeates the film. Toddy feels guilt over what he did and how it's hung over his head. Uh, Gray, played by Karloff, is feels guilty, but he also feels wronged, and he's like he's almost afraid of the 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 way his station in life has proceeded, and so in order to Rather than fighting the fear like Toddy does, he embraces it and puts it onto others. So he's found a way to bounce it back onto Toddy. So whatever fear. Yeah, he's worked it into a tool that he can use. Yeah. 
Because he, he, I get this impression from Karloff that, and it has to do with one of the most important scenes of the film, and we'll we'll kind of tease it up front, mm-hmm. is when he goes to kill the blind beggar, you know, like, he feels put out by having to go do this last minute. He says to his horse, bad news, boy, we have to go out again. There's a sense of guilt that Gray feels for having not just encouraged this, but even taking the blame for it. I don't think it's a sense of guilt as such. I think it's more a, a sense of guilt that he's actually got to take his horse out at night. I feel like that's the only thing that he's okay. concerned with. He, he's not got any concern for anybody or anything that's, else. No, that's that's totally fair. That's totally fair. Apart from a little cat. Yeah. But he also has like scruples, which is interesting because he won't. Obviously, he's not. He, he doesn't really seem to want to go kill the little girl in the wheelchair, <laughs> Georgina. Yeah, yeah, good point, yeah. Which nobody can see, yeah. which um, uh, Georgina is a name that doesn't really fit in this Scottish landscape, to my mind, unless that is a Scottish origin name that I'm not aware of. Mm, not, not that I think of, no. It's sort of a derivation of George. But Georgina's a strange one as well, because... Um, She's like the little girl that has no name because it, it's kind of mentioned <laughs> up front in the film, but then everybody seems to forget a name towards the end. And it's like, oh, the little girl. And that's how she becomes referred to. There is a deleted scene where uh, Georgina does get up and walks around and then puts on a cowboy hat and has a standoff between Eli Wallach. <laughs> <laughs> no, it's, 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 it, yeah, she's, um, she, she has this kind of floating influence. What's funny is, is that to my mind, and I feel like Karloff, when I say that he has guilt, he's just manifested it differently and Mm. he's embraced his station as an eternally guilty party. But if he's going to feel guilty, he's going to make sure everybody else feels guilty too and play that like a fiddle. Um, Yeah. But when it comes to Georgina, he has enough scruples, but he doesn't. He doesn't influence Georgina's fate in any way other than to annoy Toddy. And additionally, as much as I don't love the idea of her permeating the film because she's kind of like an afterthought, uh, she is responsible for the scenario where Fetty says the moral of the movie, which is you mustn't get used to bad things. Yeah, That line is so remarkable and it's early on in the film. It's so fantastic. It's actually um, kind of throwaway as well in the fact that you've got this whole whole subplot that's set up in a matter of seconds when um, Grey actually introduces her to his white horse mm-hmm. and then she becomes obsessed with the white horse. But then that plays into the whole sound of the horse, which is <laughs> p- just throughout. It's, it's a, an ever-present thing. Um, we'll probably get into the sound design of this film yes, anyway. Yes, we but. will, and we'll talk about mm. what Wise had to say about it. Because for those who mm. don't, for those who live in the U.S. and I guess the U.K. technically, Screen Factory put out a Blu-ray containing a new featurette along with older featurettes for Val Luton, uh, and one of them uh, is a commentary by Robert Wise for the first uh, fifty minutes of the movie, and then the rest is Steve Haberman talking. So it's a very strange uh, commentary, one where Robert <laughs> Wise takes a lot of time to get to talking about the body snatcher. He kind of sums up all of his career with Luton and it's a little bit tedious, but if you don't know anything about Val Luton 
or haven't listened to Adam's series and you're wanting a good entry point that's not podcast related, this is technically a good place to start. Um, not that I'm suggesting that you don't start with that original series um, or even our Isle of the Dead episode. Um, but mm. let's face it, Robert Wise is Robert Wise and we're not Robert Wise. <laughs> so, <laughs> um, But yeah, no, he, he ingratiates himself to the child. The mother, Mrs. Marsh, takes her in to see Dr. McFarlane, a.k.a. Toddy, to Gray. <sighs> Henry Daniel is perfect in this movie. He is absolutely perfect as Toddy. He is, I would argue, the actual villain of the movie. Like, I know that Cadman Gray is your on-the-surface villain. Toddy mm. is a monster. No, absolutely. Toddy mm. is a monster. He, in a lot of ways, resembles Dr. Knox, the gentleman yeah. that accepted the bodies from Burke and Hare. Who eventually got away with it as well, you know, and yeah, um, went off and went in to London. He didn't get away with it as such, you know, he, he sort of died in ignominy, but it was definitely uh It was not, not good. Something, yeah. Mm, no. No, and, and additionally, the story maintains that McFarlane and Knox were colleagues. And that yeah. uh, Cabin Gray was in on it, too. So it's like an MCU of body snatching. Like, all the characters got together for their end game, and Burke died. <laughs> yeah. and But he said, I am Burke. And then he snapped his fingers, and all the bodies went to Dr. Knox. Uh, no, that's not how this worked out. But Knox's obscurity and uh, ultimate shame becomes the premise for... How does one address a man who's hid all of this information into his back pocket? Because it takes three years after the Birkenhare murders. Yeah. And I feel like Toddy is one of the most fascinating Val Luton characters that's ever put and put on the screen. Because he's... He's doing that thing that I like in that Boris Karloff triple bill that I did for all the best lines. He's bringing up the points of science over superstition. Yeah. And yet the way he delivers it comes off as callous and cold rather than hopeful like it does with Karloff. And it, it's exemplified by the fact that he feels he cannot do anything for this little girl. And well, there's the bit where he's got the worst um, bedside manner I've ever heard from a doctor where he says um, something like, uh, confound it, the child's a cripple. Of course she wants to walk. Yeah. And you think, good grief. You know, this is while the child is actually sat there. I think, know, nurse, I think Nurse Ratchet is in love with Toddy McFarlane. That's <laughs> <laughs> but... Yeah, um, he's he's a very interesting character because at first you're introduced to him and you're very much on his side, you know, you, because you are set up to like these people that are, you know, the gentry and he seems like a civilised man. And it's only as you watch him through the film that you see his character arc and you realise that he's actually been, um, well, he's, he's too... A certain degree is being blackmailed by Gray. Yeah. Because he made Gray actually take the fall for him. Mm -hmm. You know, and, and then you realize that he's a far more complex character. And then towards the end, obviously, it turns out that he's just as bad, if not worse. Because he has the intelligence 
to know yes. the difference between right and wrong from the medical standpoint. Gray mm. is an opportunist businessman. Yeah. And as a result, when he gives into his final speech later on, it's extremely chilling. I wrote down mm. something, and I don't know if you'll agree with this, but hear me out. Henry Danielle's cold and selfish performance relishes in the melodramatic by inversion. It's a performance that's fueled by showing paranoia and internalizing guilt. So he's do, he's doing both simultaneously, mm. which is interesting because horror films can be accused of melodrama very easily. It's super yeah. easy to do it. See Dracula. It's very easy to accuse a horror film of melodrama. But what separates it is if you have a performer like Danielle and a script by Carlos Keith. That <laughs> <laughs> all of God. Carlos Keith, though, by the way, you know, I'm glad that he turned down the one film that was just morally objectable, which is Gone with the Wind. He was just like, nope, Carlos Keith will not touch Gone with the Wind. Not, nope, David, go fuck yourself. I, Val Luton, will help you, but Carlos, he ain't fucking doing it. <laughs> it's like this idea of two Vals split up in half and one of them is Carlos. <laughs> um, but, um, no, it, and uh, he, this also comes with Fetty's wanting to get out of the medical game as well. Because... It's too expensive. And mm. he's kind of like the wibbly wobbliest leading man ever because there are points when he <laughs> is so into the body snatching and then so against it. Like basically, yeah. if it helps his case out, he'll go along with it. Mm -hmm. But when he realizes he's gone too far, he has like uh, survivor's guilt. And he's just like, oh, well, I, we should have done it and uh, we got to arrest Gray. <laughs> and I. I I like Fetty's fine. He's not the strongest anchor of the movie. He's the heart that is sorely needed in a tale that dark. And yet he has something about him that's just kind of like boring to watch. Um, but I don't not like him. You know, he serves a good He's purpose. He's got lovely hair. Yes. He's got lovely slick hair. <laughs> yes. He has wonderful hair. Um he looks like he could completely get it on with Mrs. Marsh and be just fine. Like I, I could see that yeah. team up happening, but yeah, mm -hmm. as far as like an overall sense, Russell Wade is kind of just a, he's serviceable for what he's doing. Uh, he's a cipher. Yeah, he is. He's an empty shelf. Um, mm -hmm. And I think that what what's funny about his involvement is that, I'm wondering why McFarlane is so desperate to keep him on. Because I, because there, there is something about it that I've always wondered is like, out of all the people that are at your school, why this one? Is it just, is he the best student? Because you clearly said, he's clearly admitted I'm not your best student. Hmm. Is it just the idea that he doesn't want anybody leaving him? Or? I think it's more a case of have somebody around that can take the fall. Because you, like you mentioned already, He's pretty wishy-washy, and he'll end up being the fall guy. You know, he will take the rap for anything. So, you know, it's always good to have these people close because they're cannon fodder. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and what's more, he he gives him a sweet deal that nobody can, no college kid can turn down, exactly. which is, I'll give you a job and I'll pay your tuition. Like, fuck mm -hmm. yeah, sold. In this country, shit yeah. What's that? You want mm -hmm. me to steal bodies? Um, okay, sure. Like, 
I, I mean, like it's it's a an American kid's dream to steal get, bodies, get, get free college, and <laughs> steal bodies. Okay, like that. That to just show you how screwed up of a country we are. Oh, Degrassi, hi. I, I really didn't see that episode. That's Canada. That's that's the difference. Ah, right. Yeah, no, that's why they didn't have that episode. <laughs> um, but um, yeah, and in this time, uh, McFarlane teaches Fetties about the way they get their bodies, um, with uh, Joseph being a, a wallflower of all wallflowers, just not even making it like hidden that he is listening it <laughs> and yeah. i i just like i in talking about lugosi in this film it's really sad i cry a little bit because he's such he's such a relegated character that it's depressing to watch to say the very least he's still good but it's just still got impact. yeah but it's still depressing and to watch henry danielle berate him comes off exactly as it mm. should, but for not the same reasons as you would have been expecting in the 1940s. This is still the best I've ever heard Lugosi. Mm-hmm. I don't think I've heard anything where his accent has been less noticeable. You know, this is possibly the finest. And in fact, it's the closest to Scottish than anybody else in the cast. Yeah, which is odd. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> It's weird that Karloff, the the acting giant, couldn't attempt a Scottish accent of any kind. Um, but Lugosi, though, I feel like as he got older, he was able to kind of put in a little bit more effort toward the English. English had become more comfortable to him. That's why mm. when you watch Bride of the Monster, he doesn't sound super out of place. Like, he doesn't sound True. strictly Hungarian. Um, he yeah. is very much... Americanized up to this point. Um, and this transitions into Cabman Gray's first real abduction of a body and delivering to young Fetties. He sees that he's a young apprentice. It goes like, Ooh, a new sucker to deal with. Now you listen to me. I get paid 10 pounds for these bodies. And I equated that. That's about a thousand dollars in us dollars. Mm hmm. That's nuts for a body. That's nuts. And I, and I had to re I had to convert that through the UK trans, uh, the, the UK, uh, uh, inflation and then the U S inflation. Yeah. And it was just bizarre to me that like how aggressively rich you could get off of this business. It's chilling in a lot of ways. And like, maybe it's, maybe it's appropriate that I'm sick for this episode because the whole idea gives me the chills, as it were. Mm. Um, but no, but he he feels a little awkward about it, and he tells McFarlane, Fetty tells Farland, I'm giving up on this. And McFarlane just goes into his spiel about the need for medicine and like, well, that that child that was exhumed would be alive if it were allowed for us to dissect other bodies. I don't think you've actually mentioned the child that was exhumed, you know, yes, which is it was a child who the had beginning just, of the film. Yes, it was a child who had just died. And yeah. and Cabin Gray goes to that gravesite to mm. first kill the dog that's guarding it. Well, <laughs> that's, that's Greyfriars Robbie. We'll call it Greyfriars Robbie because it's basically a bastardization of the Greyfriars Bobby um, story. 
but they called it Robbie to, you know, change the names to protect the innocent dog. Mm -hmm. The way it works today is so impactful. I showed the movie to my girlfriend the other night. The first words out of her mouth were, they're not going to kill the dog. Oh, and then yeah. you hear the whack. And she went, oh, no. Well, it's funny. I still see echoes of this now because um, Stellan Skarsgård, I can never say his name. Stellan Skarsgård in Insomnia, the um, Danish, uh, not Danish, the Norwegian film. Um, he does a similar thing to get you completely off his side, if you like, yeah. uh, as a character. He actually kills a dog, mm -hmm. and that turns you completely off him. And then for the rest of the film, you are really set against him. And this has become such a shorthand, but it's there, right there in 1945. Yeah. And additionally, the use of shadow, which has become a lot more prevalent these days for elegance. I mean, we are hmm. seeing... With Luton, you see what modern filmmakers take when they want to make a more elegant horror film versus a little bit more of a popcorn affair. Um, Ari yeah. Aster, uh, Robert Eggers, they work in shadow quite a bit. And Cocteau used it a lot as well. What? Cocteau? Cocteau. Yeah. It really? On, it's on Cocteau. Yeah, he used loads of shadow play. Yeah. I, I must confess I'm Cocteau, Cocteau ignorant. So if it, yeah. for, for those who don't know, we explain Cocteau. Oh, good grief. Um, <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. Right. Is a, is a French artist. Hang on a second. He's a French artist and cinematographer, director. Um, he... It's really weird to explain his films because they're quite something else. La Bella Bette, you do need to see that. I would definitely recommend that, which is the Beauty and the Beast. Um, there's a lot of images in there that you will see cropping up in other films now, you know, and it, it's always going to be referenced throughout popular culture. But yeah, Cocteau uses a lot of suggested action by showing you the shadows. <laughs> rather than the actual action. Mm. And it's a similar kind of thing in this. You know, this is the same thing. I'm not exactly sure of the timeline. Not sure whether Cocteau does it first or um, Val Luton actually brings it in first. Because it seems like Luton was influenced by foreign cinema of some sort, too. Like La Bella Bette was 1946, so it's possible that he's <laughs> actually being influenced by these rather than the other way around. Cocteau died in 1963, so... But within those shadow plays, it permeates the rest of the film and yeah. it, it exemplifies itself to, to move us on in the plot. You know, we have Fetty's being taken by McFarland to a pub <laughs> where Cabman Gray essentially taunts Toddy into taking on the crippled girl case or well, the Georgina, a, the, the, the Georgina affair, I should say. Yeah. Well, this is where you first get the use of the name Toddy as well. Yes. Because up until this time, he's just been Dr. Uh, what's his surname now? Doctor, I, you know, I'm Dr. Wolf, Dr. Wolf McFarlane. Dr. Wolf. Yes. Dr. Yeah. Wolf. What a name. What a fucking name. <laughs> you there. You there, hound. What's your name? Wolf. Dr. Wolf. <laughs> like... I love it. I love it. I love a good Scottish name and Wolf is right up there. Um, but no, he, um, he, cause, cause Toddy is, we should talk about the reasonings for why Toddy refuses things. And we're going to get a big revelation later, but just off of these first two scenes alone, we notice that Toddy 
understands the textbook analysis of anatomy and medicine. Mm -hmm. He lacks a heart, which explains why he talks to Georgina the way he does. Um, Mm -hmm. Toddy even says, like, this is how showy he is without having any actual knowledge. I wrote down the quote that he has when he's showing his medical students um, how the jaw works. And he says, uh, in an adult, its muscle can uh, apply more than 175 pounds of pressure. Double that and you have the full strength of the human jaw. That, gentlemen, is to clear is to chew our food and bite our enemies. <laughs> yeah, which, which wait, we're allowed reference. to bite. We're allowed to bite our enemies. <laughs> yeah, but there's another reference later on as well where they're talking about his um, mechanical way of looking at the human anatomy as well because um, Gray actually says to him, "It's only the dead bodies that you know. There's a lot of knowledge yeah. in those eyes, but no understanding." Yes. Ah. Ah. My favorite to mm. Karloff delivery in the movie, hands down. Because it's oh, also it's that fantastic. shot in front of the mirror. It's that shot in front of the mirror, and it's fucking fantastic. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, and um, But yeah, Toddy, uh, Toddy is goaded in. And I'm calling him Toddy from here on out because he doesn't deserve yeah. to be called Wolf. He hasn't detained. <laughs> he full title. He hasn't, he hasn't. Zach Galifianakis did not tell me that he was part of the Wolf Pack. So I'm not going to believe that he is a part of the Wolf Pack until I get Zach Galifianakis to tell me so. Zach Galifianakis, if you're listening, tell me whether or not Henry Danielle <laughs> is in the Wolf Pack. Um, I'm sure he tunes in all the time. Yes, I'm sure he just tunes in all the time and then throws the podcast to catch her out in the garbage. Um, now, um, <laughs> they the refresher means like uh, they, they they he coaxes him into a drink and he, and he even says like, "Oh, don't worry, waiter, I'm with my friend, the great Doctor McFarlane." He wants to sit here with the commonality. And we start seeing mm. McFarlane's station above Cabman's and Cabman's clear irking of that. Like, he does not like the fact that he took the bullet and Toddy gets to be this this elegant uh, man of medicine. Like, it really irks yeah. him. And the movie plays into the idea of... <sighs> in a warped way, the idea of somebody who works harder than another. And then the the person below their station blames it on somebody else. Now I'm not saying that that's not an adequate response at times because circumstances and stations in life are class driven. And therefore it's absolute nonsense. In this case though, cabbie's got a point, you know, like why did I take mm. the fall for you? What did you ever do for me? Well, don't forget, at one point, he actually references um, walking through the streets getting stoned, you know, after yeah. the trial, which is obviously a reference to the Birkenhead um, trial, you know, where he actually had to leave and go to Dumfries, and then he was recognized in Dumfries and moved out from the police. Yeah, meanwhile, so, Burke was hanged to enthusiastic yeah. applause. <laughs> yeah, they sold tickets. It was, a, it was a pay-per-view event. Can you imagine getting tickets? Like, if they had executed Charles Manson, could you imagine get, buying the ticket price? It'd be outrageous. <laughs> like, I, <laughs> it's a dark thing to think about, but, like, seriously, what is Ticketmaster charging for that kind of public hanging? <laughs> Is it 90 bucks for like lawn seats and then like 120 for VIP access? You get to meet the executioners backstage, get signed photographs and posters. (laughs) Special box. (laughs) Oh, it's one of those monthly subscription boxes. They give you a full year if you buy buy the VIP package. Oh, God. 
has little Birkin hair action figures, a little playset of the boarding house. Oh God, this is terrible. We're going to hell, me especially. But um, Toddy agrees in the moment to take the case, and then immediately rejects it by saying, "Like you're not going to hold me to a promise I made in drink." <laughs> this fucking coward. <laughs> yep. Well, he, he practically palms it off straight away as well. Yeah, he he does not like the only thing that really gets him to do it is by Fetty saying like because he gives the excuse of like oh well like we don't have enough bodies to dissect so how are we gonna know what we need to do? Mm. So that's when Fetty's is like fuck it I'm going to Gray. Yeah, and in one of the most beautiful fucking sequences in cinema history, we have Fetty's walking down. The streets of Edinburgh, passing by the blind singer girl, going like, excuse me, do you know where uh, Cabin Gray is? And she just goes, no, shakes her head, keeps her singing on, uh, adds new songs to the repertoire, like, here I am, Rocky, like a hurricane. And <laughs> uh, and then we find Cabin Gray, perfectly labeled Cabin Gray. If you're... A, a body snatcher wouldn't you want a lower profile than that like that sign is a little yeah, bit he's not just a body snatcher though is he he's actually a cabbie yeah he is an actual I mean, cabbie he, that's true yeah i mean he, he sets it all up in the opening act even down to the white horse thing you know and but there's a great line that he says to georgina as well where he says someday when you're running and playing in the streets he'll nicker at you and she says i can't run and play and he's, i thought oh brilliant that's like yeah. shouting at deaf people that's yeah. fantastic yeah like i didn't hear what you said no <laughs> actually let's talk about the horse for a second the sound effects We've talked about before how sound is very important in Luton films, just as it is for Hitchcock and other filmmakers. Uh, And this one is no exception. In fact, Robert Wise had a a label for this motif, the bus motif. And it refers back to cat people when Jane Randolph is walking down the street and a bus suddenly comes up alongside her and you hear the hydraulics of the bus. Mm-hmm. And Wise said for Snatcher, it's the horse's head outside of Gray's house that appears amid the dark. Um, and apparently everybody in the Luton crew tried to acquiesce to this kind of shot. They would just it was a regular staple, meaning that at this point we can talk about what is Wise doing compared to Luton. And the answer is. Wise is aware of who's really running the show. And. Yep. He respects Luton so much that at a certain point, he's letting him embellish his style. However, Wise made it very clear that Luton never stepped on his directors. Mm-hmm. He never stepped on his directors. There's also uh, the fact that Wise actually comes from a sound background anyway, because he started off in sound, then moved to editing and then to directing. So he was all about, he'd already got the whole toolkit. You know, he knew exactly how sound was such an important thing and it could paint pictures just with audio, right? He said with the hydraulics, you know. So, obviously, you've got the whole um, repeating motif of the horse's hooves on cobbled streets, you know, which becomes something that's at first it sounds like it's a friendly sound, and in fact, it is whenever Georgina's on the scene, it's at the sound of 
hope, if you like, you know, it's the uh, the white horse of hope. What we what she doesn't know is that we see the white horse as something far more sinister, you know, and it's a fantastic twist on that. Right. But of course, the whole thing of the singer, you know, who is um, singing. Oh God, I'm trying to think what it's called. It's that's the gift old... of all Jimmy. Something, <laughs> something. I don't know it. I don't know the song. Mm. Um, I should have looked into that. I'm actually, you know what? I'll do that while we're talking about it because we're talking about. If you want to talk about Luton and his effectiveness, mm. this is the scene. This is yeah. the scene to talk about. So he tells the horse, like, "Oh, bad news, bad news." Boris Jr., we got to go out and kill. I know, I'm sorry. I know Mr. Ed is on, but you've got to go and uh, help me kill this gal. And so um, we have him. We have him going out and the little girl, the blind beggar girl is walking through this arch, which is clearly the exterior set design from the RKO studios. And. Um, she's sure singing. I've seen it in the leopard. Yeah, as she, well that that arch. Mm-hmm, yeah, hunting. Uh, she's singing when ye gang awa, Jimmy. Um, I don't know if I said that right. I'm sorry to the community in Scotland and to Stacey and <laughs> all of her subjects in Stacey Land. Um, but it's she, the song's Hunting Tower. I'm, I'm just remembering hunt, where it's hunt, called. Hunting Tower. Yeah, yeah. And she walks through the archway with the cab coming behind her. Which production reports do show that that is Karloff in the cab. Didn't have to be. It was. He was Daniel day lewis this thing. Need to be in <laughs> everything ever. And you hear the song still being sung after the clippity-clop has gone away, and then it just suddenly cuts off. Hmm. <sighs> I get chills thinking about it. I, I really do. Like, it is just unsettling as shit. This is a movie from 1945. <laughs> yeah. Well, I find the Singing Girls subplot really terrifying for two reasons. The first is, of course, you've seen her singing now. This is the third scene in the film that she's been singing. So you think anyone that can stand on a street corner and sing her heart out for days on end and not lose her voice is obviously supernatural. The second is... The fact that it's um, a woman, and from a woman's perspective, watching another woman being stalked by somebody that she doesn't know Mm -hmm. on a quiet street and being offed, if you like, so abruptly, it's very, very tough to watch. It's it's unsettling. I don't know of anybody who can watch this, man or woman. It's horrific. And not feel a tingle down their spine. Did somebody Mm -hmm. say tingler? No, shut up, Vincent. Um, (laughs) He's still hanging around here since Steve. He misses Steve, um, which we all do. We all miss Steve. (laughs) It's the human condition. But um, no, he... um, Fettys gets the body from Gray, recognizes that it's the girl, and he goes, you could not have gotten this body body rightly. Hmm. And Cabman Gray's is like, well, what's you going to do about it, jerk? <laughs> like, bitch, better pay me my money. Like that, that, that whole mentality of Cabman Gray's is like, what does it matter how I got the body? I got the body. I'm contributing to medical science. <laughs> D 
did you notice during that com- conversation as well, um, the actual score re- echoes uh, her singing. It's actually the same you vocal You hear it lightly in the background. Strings. Roy Webb was using that. Oh my God, it's great. Yes. But then later on, um, when um, uh, Toddy comes in, you can actually hear her singing it in like a spectral voice as well. You know, it's just a, a very echoey voice in the background. It's yeah. fantastic. Yeah. Again, it's down to sound. But again, it's sound. It's um, Robert Wise. I mean, we've already discussed how much he used sound in The Haunting to paint yeah. pictures. And to scare the shit out of you. Life. Yeah. yeah, to scare the shit out of little Kev Moore. He's like, I just Absolutely. need a soundtrack. That's all I need. I don't need to... <laughs> I don't need to show Jason Voorhees. I can just make Jason Voorhees sounds and it'll scare Kev. Because that was his whole yeah, goal was to it. scare you. Uh, he scared you in a different <laughs> way with Star Trek The Motion Picture by making it incredibly long. Um, but uh, It's a work of art. If when we are we going to talk about Star Trek? <laughs> it, what, I'll, I'll tell you what. Do you want to sit here for 24 hours? Because <laughs> I will drag it out as long as Wise did. Wise never saw Star Trek in his life. <laughs> Just saw 2001: A Space Odyssey. Beautiful looking movie. Yeah, it's fine. <laughs> Beautiful looking movie. Not a good Star Trek movie by the same comparison. It's a good idea for an episode that gets turned into an epic. It doesn't need to be. <laughs> um, <laughs> it's it's a good idea to bring extra cans if we start covering that one. Then yeah. Yes, exactly. Oh, and um, <laughs> you need you need patience. Do you have patience? Uh, not that much. <laughs> yeah, sorry, that might be the problem here. We need patience mm. to get through that. Um, patience that Fetty's does not have anymore with the the way that these bodies are getting apprehended. And he tries to tell McFarland again, I'm not doing this anymore. And he's just like, well, now I can help out your lady friend. Wink. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Oh, God, Todd, you fucking creep. He does the surgery. And Georgina still won't walk, much to the chagrin of McFarland. <laughs> <laughs> who, who has to throw, throws a strop completely at her. Mm-hmm. And on, on top of that, it distresses him so much that he has to go to the pub. <laughs> yeah. To which Gray. And I say, I'm done. Yeah. <laughs> I'm going. Like, Bye, Meg. I'm out of here. And he goes to the bar. <laughs> And uh, and uh, Gray is there, and Gray's just like, "Well, say it's my old pal Toddy." Hey, and he's like, "Oh my God, Gray, I'm actually really glad to see you for once." Did you know that the back is like blocks, Kev? Did you know that the back is like blocks, and you assemble those blocks piece by piece? Yeah, I I I didn't know that. I didn't know that at all. It sounds like some kind of yeah. toy. That I've been made yeah, familiar uh, with uh, over the years. <laughs> yeah, her back is fixed like a Lego set. All the bricks are in the right order, and there's still no real girl. Yep, and uh, he shows him how they're supposed to be arranged by putting one glass on top of the other. And then, <laughs> yeah. I love this shot. Cabin Gray, looking very stoic, just quickly smashes him away, and it cuts to this close-in of like, you don't understand jack shit, motherfucker. Like, this... He does the he does the monologue about like could you be a doctor a healing man with the things that eyes have seen, you understand how the body works but you don't understand how the heart works is what it boils down to. Yep. He's so cold in logic he doesn't understand human will, which is insane. It's insane, and I wondered how much of this was just 
necessity on the part of Stevenson and later of of Luton to get Toddy to an irredeemable state because I wonder was Knox this human uh, like uh, lacking humanity like was he this like indifferent to the cause of well, what's going on think about it after the whole Burke and her thing he just moved down to London and carried on he went back to um, you know, education and medi- medicine. So it's possible, that, you know, uh, Toddy's exactly the same. He's just got that same drive and right. you know, it's that determination to carry on regardless. It's, it's the same thing you see in most sci-fi or horror films today, like a doctor or a scientist who's so hell-bent on finishing the experiment. There's a horror-ish Comparison with mm. the Stanford Prison Experiment film with Billy Crudup. Like that film yeah. has Crudup never giving in, never giving in until he actually sees what it's turned into. And it's unsettling to see that kind of behavior unfold. And McFarlane makes up his mind to no longer do dissection so that he can get rid of Gray. But. <sighs> I have a feeling, Kev, that he'll never get rid of him. Never get rid of him. Never get rid of him. <laughs> and and Gray even alludes to that, like you'll not get 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 rid of me that way, Tuddy. And he even says, like, hey, I'll just come down and we'll chill out like the old bros we used to be. And hey, Meg, yeah, that's right. I know you two are secretly married. Wink, wink. Um, anyway, I'm gonna head off now and be menacing somewhere else. And that's when Joseph says, "I must speak to you alone." And, and he goes, he you like I know what you. Maybe some other time, because he because that's when Fetty's comes in, and we get a scene that is wrapped in bittersweetness as a result mm-hmm. of it, because we also see that we get Meg more involved in the process of this, and her scenes are remarkable, Kev, because she is the she's a conscience in the movie, but she's not the same heart that Fetty's is supposed to be. Yeah. Because she actively hides Toddy because she loves him so much and yet is repelled by his obsession so much. Um, I think Edith Atwater steals the show in this movie in a lot of respects. Like, her performance is a little melodramatic, but it's so good. It's so good for what this movie is. And you need this lightness from her to kind of counteract all the dark shit we're seeing. Yeah, I mean, if she wasn't in the same film as Karloff, because Karloff in this, to me, is his career best. This is the best I've ever seen him. He is absolutely horrifying. He's just an awful, awful man to watch. And he, and yet, in real life, we all know that he was just the sweetest guy on the planet. And yet, in this, he's just like... Full bore, you know, he comes out with some great lines like, we're closer than if we were in the same skin, you know, and um, he's just, he's deeply, deeply unsettling. Although there is a good line where he says, good day to you, Madden Tosspot, (laughs) when he's talking about the uh, gentry. And I still use the phrase Tosspot to this day, usually when I'm mentioning something about members of parliament. Yeah, he, he, Karloff in regards to his overall career objectively yes this is his best performance mm. i'd make a case for isle of the dead too it's a it's a tough call it's a tough call oh yeah 
Because <laughs> Isle of the Dead is asking him to do something that goes even beyond this. Because in Isle of the Dead, he's, yeah, he's got pathos and he's sympathetic. Mm. He's sympathetic in Isle of the Dead. You don't hate. You don't hate the commander in that film. But you do hate. He should do. You should do. You should do. By all intents and purposes, he should be a horrible person and you should not want to be anywhere around the commander because he's, again, he's, he's quite logical. He's, he's a bit like um, Toddy in respects, but, you know, it's, it's um, still quite hard-hitting when you lose him. Well, it comes from this d- desire from Karloff. He really is tired of the relegated monster roles. He's come off of oh, Univer- yeah. he's come off of Universal doing House of Frankenstein. He's pissed, and the only reason he signs up with Luton is because there's a promise of actual characters to play, and not the paper thin thing that Universal is doing at this time. When did he actually move to doing Broadway? Because he did, um, oh god, the uh, the comedy where. He actually says they made me look like Boris Karloff. Arsenic and Old Lace. I believe that's 41, I believe. 41. Right. So he's definitely got the bug then, you know, and he's realized that he he really can act. Yeah. And what's more, his frustration about not being able to be in the film version led him to trying to get back into film his own way. The Boogeyman Will Get You is his attempt (laughs) at this. And it's a pretty (laughs) solid attempt. I think it's a good movie. Um, but gray is just a pitch perfect. In a lot of ways, when we're not talking about Frankenstein, I think this is Carlos most iconic role. Yeah. And I say that because there's an impression in our heads of Karloff of the gentle giant and the gentle monster. But if you listen to his radio work, if you watch these movies, he had range. And this is like the evilest of the evil he's ever going to get in a movie. Yeah. And it's a benchmark. It's a benchmark for him. You want to know how evil he is, Kev? He's going to take out poor Joseph. He's going to take out poor Joseph. Oh, this is horrible. Yeah. Yeah. This is horrible. I've got notes on this. Yes. Do you please? Do you want to introduce them to this scene? Well, yeah, because obviously he shows joseph in a practical demonstration what birking is but it's the chair stunt karloff will have been 58 at the time of filming and lugosi was 63 and they both had really bad health by now you know i mean karloff was practically disabled by his back um lugosi Mm -hmm. was only five years later on six years maybe before he were dead um, you know, and it, it's it's just ridiculous that they both go completely flat out at it, uh, flip over and have a really good tussle. And at first I thought, is it possibly stuntmen? Because there is a shot where it cuts away. But later on in the film, um, Toddy has another tussle uh, with um, Karloff. Mm-hmm. And it's there right in front of you. And you can see there's no cut away. So he's really physical in this, which is crazy. I'd, I'd love to be able to do that now. Never mind, but I'm 58. Yeah, apparently, if um, according to Secret History of Hollywood, the notes show that Jack Gross was insistent on these physical stunts done by them. I want them on camera doing it. And there had to be 
insistence to Jack Gross mm. that, mm. look, Karloff's got a bad back. Lugosi is literally a morphine addict at this point. Yeah. In the worst health he's ever been in up until years later. No way it's going to happen. Nevertheless, they do it. And Wise made a note of this between uh, but when it came to working with Lugosi. He said, I kind of had to nurse him through the whole role, such as it was. And I always appreciated Karloff's sensitivity with the scene where they played together. Boris was gentle with him, knowing that he was not well, and he was very patient with him. Apparently, mm. when they would go onto the floor, Karloff would take time to sit with his rival, quote-unquote, have a cup of tea, which he made sure that the tea delivered also had a cup for Bella, and <laughs> give him a chance to catch his breath. Kind of like what you're giving me right now, Kev. You're the Boris Karloff of me. <laughs> I don't do morphine or drink, but, you know, clearly you can hear the exasperation <laughs> in my voice. And, and so, but the scene folds out with Joseph saying, give me money or I tell the police. And hmm. this is where I see the fear in gray it's fear manifested into inconvenienced and annoyed it's almost panic mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. to the point where he has to do what he does mm. which is showing well first he starts singing a song and <laughs> yeah. when he gets to the line of oh did they hang nor did they handle axe or knife to take away the victim's life you hear Bell the ghost going, I don't understand. <laughs> <laughs> which is which is a cutaway I want to use for every time I hear about a new artist coming out with an album that I don't understand and just be like, I don't <laughs> understand. What I mean, it's a ringtone. What is Ariana Grande? <laughs> <laughs> is she in a movie directed by that Adam McKay? <laughs> um <laughs> But, um, and then he says, I'll show you how they did it, Joseph. I'll show you. And then he just fucking smothers Lugosi. He's a big guy as well. You forget how much he's got hands like shovels. Mm -hmm. They're ridiculously big. I mean, he covers Lugosi completely. <laughs> it's a, uh, I found it. I looked at a photograph of the black cat. Yeah. And compared it to this and posted <laughs> it on and posted it on Twitter. <laughs> and it's so weird because Lugosi gets the upper hand on Karloff in that movie. And yeah. on their final outing, Karloff gets the upper hand on Lugosi. It's a nice mm. mirror opposite opposites uh, bookend. Um, it reminds me of Edward G. Robinson would always kill off Humphrey Bogart in the third reel. And then in Key Largo, their last <laughs> team up together. Bogey gets to shoot Edward G. Robinson. And that, that that's a beautiful thought to think of in a certain respect. But mm. there's a tragedy to it because Karloff would go on to better roles, like or or roles just as good, like Bedlam and The Grinch. Oh yeah. Mm-hmm. And Lugosi's Even got about, his own TV show. Yeah. Schiller. And yeah. Lugosi is relegated to Ed Wood, which I'm not saying that's a bad thing. No. But it's not what Lugosi really wanted. It's not really what he would have wanted deep down. He wanted to work, but he also wanted to be respected. And <clears throat> I don't like the intimation that Jack Gross apparently told him that we have big plans for you, Boris, that never come through. Or for Bella, sorry, for Bella. Because yeah. that 
breaks my heart, makes me hate Jack Gross even more. About as much as Toddy hates Gray for the fact that he has not only killed Joseph, but hidden him in this, this well that, or this, like this, is this a place for like embalming? (laughs) Like, like what, like, is it workshopping? Workshopping? (laughs) It's the hot tub. It's the hot tub. (laughs) Yes. It's the hot tub of the of you need you need a break after being an anatomist for so long. You need a hot tub to cool you off <laughs> or to, to, to get sweat out the demons, as it were, from having dissected a body like a heathen um, <laughs> for full details. Uh, visit your church anyway. Um, don't do that. Don't do that. What you should do is pay attention, though, because Toddy's lost it. And Gray essentially blackmails him even further. Keeps rubbing it in. Tells him exactly what the problem is. It's like, I've got nothing in life. But as long as I have you at my beck and call, I'm set for life, baby. Hey! Karloff, drinks drinks are on Gray tonight. Because I have this rich doctor under my thumb. Under my thumb. <laughs> yeah, it's the, it's the way that he actually plays the friendship angle and just keeps saying, well, you know, even if we're finished as a business venture, I'm still going to call around and meet you and the wife. And you're thinking, oh, God almighty, he's the one guy you don't want ringing your doorbell. You don't. No, 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 quiet no. Quiet Tuesday no. night. Mm-hmm. No, it's horrible. And what's more? And what's more, it leads to the actual wrestling scene. Apparently, the way they worked it around was that originally the fight between Lugosi and Karloff was supposed to be a bigger wrestling scene. And then they toned it down to just burking. But it feels like they gave the rest to Karloff to handle, which I can only imagine how long it took to make that scene happen because of Karloff's back problems. Yeah. I really like... It, it it disturbs me how much people didn't listen to Karloff about his back problems. Even after joining and running the Screen Actors Guild, even after the years <laughs> yeah. of complaining that he made and the Frankenstein series, how mm-hmm. in the world are you not listening to him? It goes into this thought of like, when you're on a set, you listen to the people who have concerns. I don't know the full story. We still don't know the full story of why that Bill Murray movie was shut down that Aziz Ansari was directing. All we know is that a complaint was addressed by the production company in uh, regards to Bill Murray and it was shut down. And this isn't this show's not here to make a determination on that fact. Bottom no. line is, is that it's a legal no-no. You don't just ignore these, these pleas for help. And frankly... In today's world, Luton would not probably be getting the same kind of pressure that he's getting from Jack Gross. Definitely. If he has this many critical hits, he's going to be left alone. Or virtually alone. Yeah. He would be the modern A24, you know. Does A24 have enough enough money to resurrect Val Luton? Do they have like Star Wars money where they could do it? Or they make a deal. Definitely. They make a deal. Like, look, Disney... You resurrect Val Luton for us, <laughs> and in exchange, we will resurrect Orson Welles for you to make the best Disney movie ever. I, that's yeah, all we can offer no. here as Warner Brothers. Yeah. Look, Disney, resurrect Val Luton, but just leave Walt where he is, thanks. We're not bothered about him. But um, there's, there's a phrase that I forgot about, which is just between the two fights, 
um, where Fetis actually says that he's heard his parents tell him about the story of Burke and Hare. And I thought, well, oh, how old are you? Because <laughs> this is three years before this film. He had this one film of the- is based in. He aged like Jack. You ever seen the Francis Ford Coppola movie Jack? Yes. It's that kind of aging. <laughs> yeah, but it's like he's either complete moron that never actually keeps abreast of the news, or he is two and a half years old. I feel like if that's a line, regardless of if Philip wrote it or if Carlos Keith wrote it, um, <laughs> I think given the fact that they were under such stress for this production. Lines like yeah, that weren't yeah. double checked. It's not. It's not like a blatant error that matters. But you're right. Oh, it's no. interesting because the Burke and Hare murders are supposed to be only three years of uh, yeah in the past. Why didn't the base it at the time of the um, actual novel? You know, and release it. You know, base it around 1884, which would have made more sense, or at least 1860s. You know, give some time for water to go under the bridge. No, 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 Val. Val, it's Jack here. I want this to film to be set in 1831. Damn it. It was in 1831 in the book. I've got the costumes. Look, you won't won't listen to me. Let me ask my friend David. Oh, David? Do what he says, Val. (laughs) Do what he says. Do it. Do it. I made you and I can destroy you. (laughs) Like... Um, no, it, it's, I think this is Jack Gross putting so much pressure on them. Yeah. Yeah. That it's just. That makes sense. Yeah. They just, they're letting things go. Philip McDonald, actually, I, I had to be reminded of this and it's a great moment in the Attaboy series. Um, Philip didn't want to end up being credited on the film, but yes, the WGA would never allow that. Mm. Just like they wouldn't allow Herman Mankiewicz to claim that he was the only writer of Citizen Kane. Guys, Mank is beautiful, but it has wrong facts. Anyway, I'm done done off my soapbox. You can tell that my food poisoning has rescinded because now I'm bitching about how I love and hate Mank. Um, Move on. No, no, no. We've got to talk about it. You know, fuck the, fuck the body snatcher. It's time for me to get. No, I'm, I'm kidding. We're going back to the body snatcher. No, um. This all being said, though, it's another interesting point you bring up. When it came to Scotland, these crimes were hush-hush. These crimes were hush-hush in a way that... does it? I'm wondering if it baffles me, Kev, because I'm so ingratiated with a society that is obsessed with true crime. That Mm. there were some cases that you could not talk about in mixed company. And yeah, I mean, yeah, ahead, it was yeah. fairly public knowledge. It was fairly public knowledge locally, you know, but um, that's why um, there was a way for everybody to get away from it, if you like, you know, like um, going down to London, um, hair actually disappearing. Yeah. He doesn't die or anything. Nobody knows what, exactly what happened to him. He basically headed south to England and nobody knows anything from there. You- Again, it probably turned up in the Times notices, but it won't have been anything like, you know, the the Ripper murders or anything like that later on. No, that one's like the Zodiac. The that's like the Zodiac versus the Son of Son of Sam killing. Yeah, 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 definitely. I was going to bring up that Stevenson when he was an undergraduate. He noted that Burke and Hare were still spoken in hushed tones, and I have mm. a I have a a quote from Stevenson. He said, "Whenever Burke and Hare were brought up." 
you'd see an entire classroom of people get into dance mode and go, we don't talk about Burke or hair. We don't talk about <laughs> Burke or hair. But so, you know, they, they knew not to talk about Bruno, Burke and hair in the 1800s. Um, it's, it's to me one of those like, unlike we don't talk about Bruno, though, Burke and Hare aren't like redeemable people that live in the walls with rats. <laughs> well, Stevenson has got form for writing about, you know, reprehensible characters. Oh, yeah. Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde. Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde. You've got Treasure Island, which has got a hero, which to many is not a hero at all. You know, you've got Long John Silver. So- no, no, no. Jim's the villain. Jim's the villain. <laughs> <laughs> Definitely. That's that's so, when I know, Walt, that's when I Walt Disney saw the story and was just like, well, we can't have a child be the villain. Uh, what is this, with, the omen? Uh, back with the Walt Disney again. Yeah, what is wrong with you? I'm I'm I. <laughs> you know, I'm actually amazed how popular that episode was because we went on several different tangents. Um, but no, you're you're right. He is a dark author for his time. Which makes yeah. it interesting where he's just like, Fuck this! I ain't going to steal graves in my stories anymore. Like that, <laughs> he's he's that, like, it's like, <laughs> it's like if you write the most horrific story and it's so horrific that you have to toss it into the fire but it keeps coming back. Oh, like New Nightmare, where he's haunted by it and he <laughs> has to write it because otherwise his nightmares won't stop. <laughs> it also sounds like the plot for a Stephen King book. Oh, maybe Secret Window, perhaps? Mm, probably. Mm, yeah. yeah. You stole <laughs> you stole my bodies. <laughs> <laughs> That's a pretty fun movie, guys. You should check it out. It's pretty fun. Um, but anyway, we've, we, we, we've tangent on long enough. We're, we're, we're yeah, delaying yeah. the inevitable. Back to the fight. Back yes. to the fight. Back to the fight. The, the fight is fantastic. And again, you are going back to shadow play. There's a lot of fight at the beginning where you think, oh, action, oh, oh, and this is not stuntmen. And then yeah. suddenly it cuts away and you're left guessing what the result is because you don't see anything. You see shadows, you see somebody being clubbed to death. Yes, and you and don't, then, and it's not discernible who's who in the in the exactly. Exactly. And, and you, you, again, you've got the sound of the horse's hooves going to the doctor's house. And you get the figure with the top hat with the sack over his shoulder coming uh-huh. in, unloading. And it's not until the reveal that it's the doctor dropping the sack off, mm-hmm. you know, that y- you actually know what the hell has gone on. It's a really, really clever piece of filmmaking, that. Yeah. And keep in mind the culmination of this, which, first of all, I will bring out, bring out the fact that there was a way for them to mitigate how much physicality Karloff was doing here. Um, They cut away to a shot of a cat. And my my girlfriend, the more she watched Golden Age Hollywood, she gets better at this. Like she's, she's smarter than I am. She's like, that cat did not meow. That cat purred. (laughs) She dissected (laughs) the lip movements of a cat. (laughs) She should be the host, Kev. You should be talking to her, and I should just be sitting <laughs> off to the background, just 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 like looking pretty. Because that was like one of the best notes I could ever get out of an episode. Was like the, the, the cat, cat AD, is miming. The cat ADR is wrong. <laughs> <laughs> I feel like I'm not good at ADR, but god damn it, maybe Val Luton has taken the edge off of me a little bit. 
Because <laughs> at least I can latch lip movements. But he um and that and that scene where in the silhouette when he smashes him. Yeah. It's Ooh. amazing how violent the film is. Violence in the shadows, but still violence. The intensity and the beats of this are so remarkable that you feel like if this movie were 20 minutes longer and had more shots of gore, it would work conceivably as a horror film, maybe by James Wan or something like that. Uh, yeah. Or uh, maybe Lee Wannell. I don't know. Maybe he'd have more fun with that. I don't know. Like, uh, it, it, regardless of who would direct it, hmm. you would, you're literally just watching like a film re-edited for television in some respects, but in a good way. In a good way, it's it's knowingly cutting together the way it's supposed to. And I don't know. This is something that I wanted to ponder as I was doing this, because I just did a Hitchcock episode not too long ago with Andrew Saunders. And we talked about his editing. And of course, when you talk to Hitchcock, you talk to him about his editing and he's like, oh, I'm just great. And Hitchcock would go down to the frame. I'm wondering how yeah. much Luton would get down to the frame, because everything in here seems so deliberate. And yeah. so pre-assembled. And yet when you read the production stories of Val Luton, it almost sounds like they're cobbling it together out of bricks and clay each film at a time. And yeah, sorry, I, mean, yeah, I don't mean to digress. Well, on, no, yeah. no, no, no. I, I think you're right there. I think you're onto something. But don't forget that you've got both Val Luton, who is by this time ridiculously adept at doing this kind of thing. And you've got, you know, you've you've got, Robert there that is an editor first so yeah. he's always got that on his mind you know he's seeing exactly how this is going to cut together before he's even started shooting it mm. so yeah you know between... he's, he's such he's such a good editor Kev you know how good he is mm. he was able to butcher Magnificent Ambersons and somehow make it comprehensive I don't know <laughs> I'm I, kidding. I love the story about that. No, I, I, I love the story about that. Where yeah. um, he was actually told, "Yeah, you do this, or we get somebody else in." And he went, "Okay, yeah, well, I'll do it then," because George, he didn't want to let anybody else destroy it. Yeah, and he didn't want Orson to. He, mm. we we just talked about magnificent Ambersons, and I put Bob Wise on a on a on a on a cross to basically sacrifice him to film God. I'm going to take him mm -hmm. off of there and bring it back to something we discussed about Bob Wise and the haunting. It's got to be tough to make a decision between your own career and adhering to the man who basically gave you one of your biggest assignments ever, ever. But yeah. keeping in mind at the time, Citizen Kane is not this golden idol that, that, that they worship at the altar right away. It's a very well-received film. But it is not like Steven Spielberg isn't like going off to buy the sled right away. <laughs> yeah, don't forget it was still a flop. Yeah, you know, it was a critical success, but it was a flop, mm -hmm. and it was RKO. And RKO aren't exactly Paramount or Warner's at this point. You know, they they are basically just churning out B movies mm -hmm. at the end of the day. Yeah, you know, and they've never really got anywhere further than that. So, you know, perspective. Yes, it there is perspective and. When we talk about Ambersons, we laid on the same conclusion that we're probably going to lay in now. If there's any frustrations in these stories, it's RKO's fault. RKO is a studio mm. that, in a lot of ways, I'm glad it failed. Because it just it wouldn't make common business sense 
for their model to continue the way it was. Like, the chances that they took with Kane are admirable to a fault. <laughs> yes. But it also might be the stupidest thing they could have ever done. And I love that they made that stupid decision. Um, but mm-hmm. you can't sustain a studio off of this fluctuating pattern, you know? Yeah, but I've seen the same thing mirrored with Here Lies Amicus. I'm going through the Amicus history, and oh my God, they are just going from lurching from one bad decision to another and hoping that they're going to hit gold. And then every now and again, they will hit gold and that will then perpetuate them for another three movies. Yeah. You know, till they find another one that's going to hit. You know what the secret was? Getting Donald Pleasance's daughter to stand there creepily with him. That's that was the secret to me. Yes, <laughs> to that's, me. that's a winner. <laughs> yeah, I did. I did watch the Secret Agent movie, though. That one was a winner for dumb reasons. And Danger Root. Danger. That's fantastic. Danger Root. We kind of talked about it, but in full full disclosure, you know, there's a difference between a B movie and a B.O. movie. <laughs> and I think that Danger Root might have to take that top seat. We're not talking about B movies of class, like out of the past or even the body snatcher. We're talking like low end of the spectrum. And it's definitely. And, but RKO and Amicus share that normal trend. And there mm. are other studios today that still fall into this trend. They. Yep. And sometimes they get resurrected because we'll never get rid of them, never get rid of them, never get rid of them. (laughs) RKO came back to life several times, especially for that Mighty Joe Young remake that Disney did. Like that, that boggles my mind that it would even try to do this. At a certain point, RKO just gave up. Hammer Mm. has tried to come back, and I don't really know how to gauge their success with that. Um, I like The Woman in Black, but, you know, like, RKO, though, is a studio that, is responsible for so many classics, has some of the richest history on its planet, and yet it could not sustain itself to the point where Howard Hughes had to buy this company in the late 40s, early 50s. That's if you're if if you're letting Hughes buy you, you're in trouble. Because Hughes was yeah, a fucking rocket of a man who didn't give a shit about anything. Like, the thing is though, Hughes bought it for basically pocket money. Yeah. You know, as far as he was concerned, you know, it, it was no sweat off his brow to actually buy it. Outright. And that actually, and just like never getting rid of somebody, you know, McFarlane may be dead, but we're not getting rid of him. And what's more, mm. here's a question. So we, on the Isle of the Dead, we talked about, is the Vervolica real or not? And we had an interesting talk about that. Here's a question mm. that I have that may be stupid, but I've always thought about this with this film and I want to pose it to you. Do you think that there's a way to view this movie if you're going in for the supernatural of it all? Yeah. That Gray's ghost inhabits McFarlane and pushes him over that edge to be even worse than he already was. There's definitely an easy way to read that. Yes, you know, that is very much something you could buy into if you want to look at it from that angle. Um, But to me, it's just because Gray has basically obsessed. Mm hmm about this for so long and it's actually passed on to um toddy and toddy has become so maniacal because of how overwhelming gray's character is yeah madness begets madness yeah absolutely yeah yeah you know and and it's just the obsession and the fact that he finally thinks that he's free you know and he, he there's that kind of again we're buying back into the guilt 
Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know, which is overwhelming him. Yeah. And what's more like, and first of all, I agree with your theory, but I pose the other one because mm, it works. Luton's films are notorious for treading the line between the supernatural and the real yep. and the psychological, mm. which as we talked about with the haunting, as we talked about, he doesn't dismiss the idea of ghosts, but he's very nope. specious of it. And in here, the, the, the reasons for that proposal come from Danielle's performance yeah. and what he is doing in the inn. He acts his tits off in this film. He's amazing. Yeah. So much so that Meg is so worried about him and how mad he's gotten yeah. that she at first doesn't mm. want to tell Fetty's where McFarlane's gone off to. She also, by the way, we should point this out. She claims to be a Highlander. <laughs> and yeah, <laughs> my first, I, I didn't write it down in my notes, but any, anytime you hear that, I just think there can be only one. So she's probably the only Highlander in Scotland, in Edinburgh during the body snatcher years. Does Sean Connery's Spaniard get the ability later? <laughs> I don't know. I don't remember Highlander to be a fanboy about it. I just know that the fact that I did not see Atwater in fight scenes <laughs> later on in the 80s <laughs> is goddamn frustrating. You, you you can't tell me that nobody didn't try to reach out to her. Um, I mean, oh, she did die in 1986. So maybe she wouldn't have been able to wield a sword. But um, nevertheless, though, she finally tells Fetty's because I think she sees that Fetty's is just as obsessed. But he's also on a line where he can either go to heaven or hell. And I and again, yeah. not to not to bring Bible speak into it, but that is the easiest way to well, communicate that info. There's another point where Bible speak where um, Georgina's mum, uh, uh, she comes across as a bit of a Jehovah's Witness to a point where she says, now that it seems so close, I wonder whether I trust my child's life to anything but God's hands. Yeah, yeah. Which is a really weird take, you know, and it's straight out of left field. But you think, well, yeah, I mean, you've had these characters kind of milling about in the background. Yeah. You might as well make them interesting when they come back. Mm -hmm. And what's more, we we can reveal this. Georgina, you know, the gal that we kind of check in and out of on this film? (laughs) With the Lego back. (laughs) Yeah, with the Lego back. Yes. Well, um, uh, she teamed up with Chris Pratt and she saved uh, Bricktopia. Or, um, I can't remember the Lego movie, but I do love it. Um, no, uh, her Lego back and the power of love, which is a curious thing. Make one man weep and make another man sing. Um, the power of love and the desire to see this fucking horse. Gets her to <laughs> yeah. stand up. <laughs> the white horse. Yeah. Rob Zombie said that and goes, say, what if this but the Myers family? <laughs> I don't hate the now, white horse. Man. I, I love, I love that scene though. The the white horse scene, you know, because you've got the young doctor talking to his mother. Uh, sorry, you've got the young doctor talking to her mother, and in the background you can hear her saying, "Mummy, mummy," or something like that. You know, <laughs> and, and then you can every now and again you're teased by watching her looking at the wall, and I'm thinking, "Ah, oh, brilliant, she's." gonna go over the wall she's gonna fall to a death and i'm thinking this suspense is killing me this is brilliant Kev, and... you dirty dog <laughs> <laughs> unfortunately she doesn't so i was quite um sort of despondent about that you know <laughs> did you talk to your therapist just... for five days about it <laughs> <laughs> well i mean let's face it i'm i'm already happy with the fact that we've not got any happy ending so far i mean no no let's face it 
by this now is, we've already left. This gray. is just this is just a meh solution. <laughs> like it's meh resolution. <laughs> and yeah. he go, he wants to go tell Toddy, like, Toddy, we fucking did it, bro. Up top. Yeah. yeah. We we can heal anything, motherfucker. And <laughs> he goes to the bar. He sees Toddy all despondent and what have I done? And then he <laughs> just goes with a razor and talks about Joanna. No, um, he um when he hears the news about Georgina being cured, he takes this as a sign that he's meant to go on and that Gray is out of his hair for life. And yeah. and we have I wrote down the quotes, some of the quotes of what he's saying, because it's it's very telling and it's also kind of tragic at the same time. Um, I must have bodies to teach. We'll do our own dirty work and we will. Mm. Lines like this, where he has just embraced the same fear that Gray embraced. Yeah. And we are treated to a scene that, much like Hitchcock and Pure Cinema, doesn't require a lot of dialogue, does require sound, but like very much a silent film motif with the exception of the VO that is to come. Yeah. Because in the bar, they overhear of another family member that's been buried and Toddy gets that look on his eyes going fresh meat motherfuckers. And so they get into the carriage to go rob this grave, which isn't protected by all of them. Back to the Birkin hair for a second. The fact that there were iron like grates on the mm. coffins. And I heard this in Adam's series and I've always made note of it. There were exploding coffins for some of these grave robbers <laughs> yeah. that get smacked in the fucking face with cannonball bullets. That shit's nuts. <laughs> yeah, the, this was a, kind of an epidemic, if you like, because mm -hmm. it also happens in France and Italy. Um, there's a, a lot of um, a lot of cemeteries now that you can go around where there's still caged um yeah. it's crazy which which the way i understood it was that they were there temporarily until the body was absolutely unusable by an anatomist and then they would take it off and rent it out to somebody else yeah or have people guarding it at night which oh you little dog <laughs> a little dog not as effective as two burly men looking after it that's a movie that should happen <laughs> that's a movie that i'm sure has happened but i need it to happen again two people guarding a grave and the menacing force outside is quite literally a body snatcher or two, and they have to fight them off at some point. Like it's like a, an isolated container piece. Like that would be amazing. Um, what we get here is just as good, though. They rob the body, and they get back into that carriage, and suddenly, Toddy starts hearing it. He starts hearing it. You'll be able to hear it, folks. I think you can hear it as much as I can hear it. Never get rid of me. Never get rid of me. Never get rid of me. He insists that Fetty's pulls over the carriage because they have to see the condition of the body or the, see the body, make mm -hmm. sure it's what we got. He goes like, I don't think we dug up a woman. And they turn around and he unveils the curtain and it is, it's Joseph Gray or jo not Joseph Gray, John Gray. Yeah. Just, just there for a single shot. 
It's like filtered really nicely too. Like it's amid the rain. And Wise said that mm. these shots were always difficult unless they were in the control of the process shot because all the close up stuff inside the cabbage is processed. Everything else is on the lot on the RKO lot in uh, San San Fernando Valley. So yeah, <clears throat> for that shot, when you watch the Blu-ray, it's a little blurry, but I think that's the, all you would need. It's all that you would need. It just still works mm-hmm. perfectly because you see his outline and <laughs> Toddy just goes. If there's one thing I I would question about Danielle's performance is like it's his look. It makes him look like the um the li- the head of the library from the mummy movies where he's like, no, you must not read from the book. Oh no, not the head of the library, the head of the American expedition. And he's just like, no, you mustn't read from the book. And Brendan Fraser's just like, fuck you. Um, <laughs> um, but he has that kind of look about him, and Fetty's is knocked out of the carriage. <laughs> And Karloff and him are going to ride to Valhalla. <laughs> and that cab crashes. The carriage crashes. Both of them are murdered. Fetty's goes to look at the body and sees that it was the woman the whole time. So, yeah, which to me, uh, it's really weird because I only noticed it this time. But that is basically Betty Davis's look in whatever happened to baby Jane. Mm-hmm. It's exactly the same makeup job. Yep. Yep. Very good. Very good call and spot. It's very, and it, and it has this look of disbelief. It's disbelief and terror <laughs> yeah. of, uh, of, a, of a body that could have conceivably been Karloff earlier. And we end the movie on a quote. We end it on a quote. It is through error that man tries and rises. It is through tragedy. He learns all roads of learning begin in darkness and go out into the light. Hippocrates of Kos. So we ended on the hip, uh, on a Hippocratic quote. Um, and mm. then, and I, I, uh, I had a question of logic. Does Fetty's just leave that carriage? Like, does he tell anybody? Right. <laughs> well, yeah, but I thought about this and I thought if the Coens actually remade this, you would have poor old Fetty's would start walking back to Edinburgh, still in the, pouring down rain after the coach crash and he would die of exposure on that horrible highland weather and um so nobody would ever know what was happening except meg who would be played by francis mccormand yeah and she would never tell yeah it's either that or he gets guilt tripped into it with midwestern logic like oh you shouldn't do that no 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 <laughs> no 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 you gotta you gotta but, put that body underground now eh like <laughs> but yeah um there's one thing about the voiceover that really triggered me this time. And I thought, hang on. Yeah, that's what's been missing. All the way through, Karloff's performance is pretty much on one level. His voice is very controlled all the way through. You know, he's he's very much in control and he doesn't lose his cool and he's very measured. Except at the end of that that particular looped bit. And that's the only time he starts to raise his voice. And it's quite something because you're not used to it by then. You know, you've been watching it for 70 minutes, 80 minutes. For it suddenly to raise in tone like that, it's like, oh, wow. Yeah. Yeah. No, it's, um, it's, it's the most disturbing thing Luton has ever concocted Mm. because it's an earworm. 
It's yeah. like it's like uh, three more days till Halloween, Halloween, Halloween. <laughs> except, except it's scary as shit as opposed to stop it, stop it, stop it. <laughs> like it just doesn't like it doesn't have the same. Uh, like it doesn't have the same effect that other earworms do. Now we have songs that are earworms, but this one in particular is just it plays like radio. I would be shocked to find out that people wouldn't like an adaptation of radio over this. That wasn't CBS mystery theater or something like that. It's such a good, such a good use of voiceover that I think Mm. will get under underwhelmingly responded to by some people who responded to this movie, Kev amongst the other things they had qualms with you ready for some reviews of this film that we've just talked about. Hit me. Time time for Bosley Crowther to come crawling back into our lives. We'll never get rid of him. Never get rid of him. Never <laughs> get rid of him. Um, and uh, <clears throat> this new gloom lodger, though not as nerve paralyzing and atmospheric terror to make it one of the better of its genre. Boris Karloff sporting a day's old beard, <laughs> which, first of all, it's not really a beard like it's it's stubble. Just use words yeah. correctly, please. Uh, is in there pitching with ghoulish delight as an Edinburgh cabbie circa 1830 got the name, got the year wrong again, um, whose hobby is snatching people out of their graves and Bella Lugosi surprisingly unsinister for a change works insidiously industriously, sorry, to achieve fame as a blackmailer a long time ago, Robert Louis Stevenson supplied the plot in a short story about the difficulties of medical men had in procuring cadavers for scientific study and RKO has taken the exhumation from there for less noble purposes. The body snatcher is certainly not the most exciting chiller drama. The Rialto has done, has often done much better, but it is somewhat more credible than most and manages to hold its own with a nary werewolf or vampire. But then with Karloff on the prowl, what chance would a bloodthirsty hobgoblin stand? So, he didn't hate it, but he was critical of it, which I feel like he didn't watch the movie. But, you know, we're not going to we're not going to get into how terrible that can be. You know, yeah, like, yeah, it sounds like he's writing around it. You know, he's basically going on what he knows of the story and what he knows of Karloff mm-hmm. rather than addressing what the film is about. It's it's it's. um. It's less it's less than dutiful for his job as a film critic. Consequently, he just pissed off halfway through, you know, just had finished his popcorn and thought that's oh, it. Oh, like I'm Joel Siegel it. during Clerks 2? Yeah, I would I would imagine that. <laughs> yeah. yeah, I'll never forgive Joel Siegel because you don't fucking do that. I don't care if you don't like donkey shows. You sit through the rest of that wonderful movie. Um, but no, you're right. Um, now, other critics of the air, though, enjoyed it, found it a first-rate thriller. Modern critics love this film. Uh, anywhere mm-hmm. on down from Roger uh, uh, Roper on down to Walter Chaw from Film Freak. You have an adoration for this film, and this film made a lot of money, a lot of money, a lot of good money. Among the last of the films that would make a good tidy profit for the Luton gang, because as we all know, the other entry in Luton's career is ill-received at the box office, and Luton leaves RKO on the proper assumption that he can do what he did with more control over at Paramount. And that doesn't really happen because my own true love is a flop goes over to MGM for please believe me. And his final film based off of a story that he wrote is for universal called Apache drums. 
and within that, you know, we'll talk more about Luton and probably talk about Bedlam at some point. So, but we're, we've talked about ones where he's at his peak and then we'll watch the very quick decline. But Kev, we talked about how Isle of the Dead had a lot of modern day interaction, but could you sum up for your, for your two cents, how this film in particular has influenced people to this very day? Well, there's, there's directors today that you can see a direct correlation with, like Ben Wheatley. I mean, granted, his actual output is very patchy at the most, but, um, you know, you can see that he uses the same kind of tricks even now, you know, where he depends on suggestion a lot more than actual yeah. visuals. You know, and um, like with In the Earth and, um, oh, God, what's the one with the the Killer for Hire? I can't remember what it's called now. Oh, um, was it Free Fire or a different one? Uh, no, it's not Free Fire. It's um, it's the one earlier. It's, it's like a Wicker Man kind of weird thing. Mm. Uh, but, yeah, it's very much, you know, um, working from that same sort of principle where less is more, you know, and uh, looking at how you can actually... I don't know, generate a mood, you know, and actually feed stuff into you and do it in a cool kind of way, you know, where just like with um, uh, Karloff's performance where it's very controlled. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know, so you do, you, you, there's still ripples to it even now. And uh, like I said, A24, again, you, you, you've got films like Get Out where it's got that same insidious kind of feeling to it, you know, and you, you are watching characters turn around in such bizarre arcs, you know, and, and people that you would be rooting for, you know, and then they're turning around on a, a dime and mm-hmm. you think, hang on, wait a second, you're a bunch of shits. So, you know, it, it's, it's still there. It's, 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 I think it's permeated us in a similar way that we talked about with Isle of the Dead. Like the Luton style has found itself <clears throat> as the most latched upon style for a director mm. who's not necessi- necessarily looking to shock, they're looking to scare. And, you know, we, we mentioned Shutter Island last time, and Martin Scorsese clearly yeah. loves Val Luton. Um, for the body snatcher, you know, I wasn't as big a fan of the movie as I thought I might be. But John Landis's work on Burke and Hare clearly comes from a love of those older movies and trying to do his own spin on it. American Werewolf in London does the same thing. Very mm. dark comedy, very horrifying film. Burke and Hare arguably does something very similar by its very nature and concept. Um, now, is it in good taste to do what he did? Probably not, but <laughs> you know, who am I going to judge? Um, heck, even having gangs in New York, Martin Scorsese alluding to American grave robbing on their side of the aisle of the, of the ocean, because they literally see that they're not able to uh, Leonardo DiCaprio and the gang that's working covertly for, but Bill the butcher, uh, they go to a ship. They can't loot the ship. So they loot the bodies of the people that were murdered. And he cuts to 
them selling them to medical science and a story pops up in the paper where Daniel Day-Lewis is going, ghoul gang slaughters, a fresh outrage in the five points. That's a notice you can be proud of, boys. So unlike Knox, Bill the Butcher is just like, no, I don't care how many bodies they sold to medical science. There's money in my pocket for my butchery business. And, <laughs> uh, and additionally, I think the idea of grave robbing becomes more accepted as a horror plot because of this. Somebody has to break down the barrier. The censors did not like this by its very nature alone. <clears throat> and yet, arguably, if you don't have this canoodling with a dead body, would you even have a movie like The Trouble of Harry? By Hitchcock? Yeah, good point. Yeah, yeah. because I, I would guarantee oh, you... this Weekend at Bernie's. Yes! Oh my God, Weekend at Bernie's. There has to be a starting point. And Val Luton clearly inspired Weekend at Bernie's. Weekend at Bernie's. Yeah. <laughs> there you oh, go. I love this. Val Luton. We don't have a sound recording of Val Luton's voice, so I'll just give him a voice right now. Say, that's a really good idea. Yeah, I like that. Yeah, 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 yeah. Anyway, though, uh, long story short, though, additionally, this is, again, what gives Karloff an iconoclastic role to latch onto along with Frankenstein. If there's anything that he's going to be remembered for in terms of his characterizations, it's going to be this, Frankenstein, and I'd argue the black cat because that's an image that you can't get out of your head, this idea of a satanic leader with who's committing incest on his daughter like you know it's 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 an image that you can't escape Hmm. andy looks all like well shaven and shit and that that setting of him at the church looks terrifying um and additionally it does show that bella lugosi still had it in him still had it in him to do a good performance i think bella's great in this movie it's not his greatest performance but it's a better performance than i think most people would give him credit for of his time you have to look at it as like the the spotlight cameo, you know? <laughs> I love the fact that he does this as understated. You know, the fact that he doesn't just turn up and go, hey, it's Bella. You know, he basically... That would, that acts... would be strange. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah. Here's sitcom he applause. actually acts. Yeah. <laughs> you know, and, and actually turns in a performance that is believable mm-hmm. and you know, relatable. And, and, and when that scene happens, you're dealing with two opportunists. One's yeah. very inept and the other one's skilled, but they're both opportunists. Exactly. Yeah. And that's mm. what gives him something fresh to work with in just one scene. He maybe has what a combined total of one page dialogue in this movie at best. Yeah. Yeah. Every single minute he is on screen, he plays it to the hilt. He, yep. You know, I, I I love talking about Bella because he always surprises me. Boris Karloff, as much as I love him, he doesn't surprise me the way Bella does. But if we can talk to Karloff's side of things for a minute here, I think there's a reason for this film existing because if it weren't for this, I don't think you would have been able to give Karloff a terrifying performance afterward that wouldn't have been clumsy or foolish. He's allowed to Mm. do something much more sinister because of this movie, if he so chooses. Oddly enough, though, and and I know that you and I both watched the Man Behind the Monster documentary that Shout Factory put out. Yeah. 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 There's an implication that one of his films, he did not want to be this supremely villainous person. 
And so they had him rewrite the role. I can't remember the f- name of the film at the moment. It was one of the later ones, wasn't it? Was um, was one of the very later ones, yes. Yeah. I think it's before Targets. Or It was. Yeah. He, he really liked Targets. Yes, he did. He would say that that was his final film, even though it wasn't. Mm. Or his final yeah. performance, even though it wasn't. Um, but there is like there is a sense that as Karloff gets older, though, back problems combined with his age, him being a father and grandfather, he wants to do something that he can lean on as a positive portrayal that isn't just the monster. Targets gives that to mm. him. Targets really gives that to him. And I feel like it's another example of how Karloff is given this stature that he rightly deserves. Who else would lay into the malevolence this way in a way that I'll be honest, it reminds me of the reason why you enjoy watching the Firefly family in a Rob Zombie movie. Sometimes you really want to watch a guy be evil, like to be really supremely evil. Mm -hmm. Um, Either you're that or the family in the Texas Chainsaw Massacre, either version, you know, people like Arlie Ermey a lot. He's like a very iconic character in that reboot series. And Freddy Krueger. Sometimes you want to watch Freddy Krueger just tell a joke or two. He makes being evil look so much fun, which is troubling for this movie in particular. (laughs) Well, there's only one point where you actually think that he's actually trying to be uh, a nice person, you know, and that's when he's actually lifting Georgina out of the carriage at the very beginning of the film. Yeah. Even then he starts poking fun at her being crippled. (laughs) So it's, pretty obvious straight from the bat exactly where you're going with this character and he just never lets up he leans into it heavy Mm -hmm. he's very evil all the way through yeah oh it's kill list i've just remembered kill list is the ben wheatley film i'm thinking of kill list okay i am i've only seen two ben wheatley films uh rebecca and into the earth so um... sightseers is worth seeing as well that's okay all right um fair enough yeah there's ben wheatley and Skipping back to France again, there's Jean Rollin as well, who takes a lot of ideas from um, Val Luton and Robert Wise, for that matter, you know, as far as visual interpretation and making pure cinema. You know, there's very little scripts in his stuff. You know, a lot of his stuff is just impressionistic. So, yeah. Mm -hmm. And additionally, I think that it's another one of those instances on Ballyhoo where we talk about the ability to be absolutely ghastly on screen without showing a damn thing. Yeah. And it's, it's among those things that builds us up, uh, builds us up and makes an audience ready for psycho because I'd argue that an audience was ready for psycho because of films like Luton's and Hitchcock's and other films of this nature. Absolutely. And especially mm. the noir coming in from Jacques Tenure and other noir filmmakers of yeah. the era, like Billy Wilder. It's one more piece of the equation that says we are ready to abolish this stupid code and be allowed to see nudity, gratuitous violence, uh, breaking all the laws of decency set by the Bible. Like it's it's one of those other little cogs in the wheel. And I'd argue it's a big Mm. one because grave robbing is not a joke. Like it's 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 still very much looked looked down upon as it should. But like to a point of even subject matter itself being distasteful. And well, I'll- there's an episode of The X Files where you've got um, a a guy that actually defiles um, corpses in the morgue, you know, in the funeral home, and 
that again it's very disquieting quieting subjects you know and it's handled very well and you've got futurama even doing it to humorous effect like when they go to dig up uh the other yeah. Philip J. Fry, you have Bender like <laughs> go, digging the corpse. And he goes, I got the I got the clover bus is Redding Wing. Sorry, ladies, I'm taken. And then, oh, uh, <laughs> my favorite line in that, which is there. Now, nobody will be able to say I don't own John Larroquette's spine, <laughs> which is a great, wonderful, random line. Um, as far as the restorations of this film, as we talked about before, but we'll kind of jump back into it. It's another example of how you should treat films with dignity in restoration because these are the films that gave you the films you love. And I'm not saying you have to love them. You don't have to love The Haunting. You don't have to love Isle of the Dead. You don't have to love The Body Snatcher. But it should be available on a mass market if it was that influential to get other films made that you make tons of money on as a studio and adore as a fan. And, you know, Spielberg has been very good at Propping up other filmmakers to an extent. Martin Scorsese does this. Scorsese does it daily. Yeah. He does it like it's a religious act. And Mm -hmm. you also have other restorationists that really care about these being presented the way they do. In a way, I wonder if there's a nitrate print of this because there's apparently a nitrate film festival in New Jersey that shows the nitrate prints through the proper projector as there's meant to be seen. So there's an element of danger. You might actually die at those screenings because of the nitrate (laughs) film being on site. Um, They call it the most dangerous film festival out there. (laughs) Or fun time. But, but it's another example like God bless screen factory for putting this out in a version that we can all ingest and enjoy with the proper restoration and the proper picture quality, because you can watch the shadows at work. And I think yeah, that, I think that's very important because this film is, by its very nature, very dark. There's a lot of scenes that where you've not got a lot of light in the actual frame, you know, because of the way it's shot. It's very much like Barry Lyndon. Yeah. You know, if you've got a candle in the room, you've not got the whole room illuminated. You've just got around the candle. Well, and I looked at other prints comparing mm. to mine. The yeah. more you duplicate a print and the more you run it, you lose your contrast value. You lose detail because it, it crushes blacks in a way that they're not supposed to be crushed. And there's mm-hmm. a print where you can see that like virtually everything is done in a spotlight. It seems from the way it looks, it's a little bit unsettling. Whereas the entirety of this film is staged in such a way that the details in the shadows themselves matter. Yeah. And I think that it's a testament to, Uh, our friend Adam, that he created something that Martin Scorsese made the shadows documentary, the man in the shadows doc. There's another featurette that, uh, that has Luton's uh, story told, but I think it's very hard for you to connect emotionally with a producer. You don't think of them as human beings at times because of the men with the money they're not necessarily there with the artistic vision. David O. Selznick is maybe the close you get. And even then it's hard because David O. Selznick put his foot in his fucking cocaine all that time. So, <laughs> and again, like the, I don't The closest hate... I've got is the Milton Sabotsky. Um, yeah. Who was the uh, producer for Amicus. Again, he's very much going on that model, you know, and he, he's very much involved in the scripting and how the, that the overall film comes out even down to editing again 
you know, going back to Luton, you know, mm. uh, but he was very much a product of what he'd learnt from earlier stuff anyway. You know, his favourite film is Dead of Night, for instance. So, mm -hmm. you know, it, it kind of makes sense that he's actually taking all his, everything that he's learnt, basically, from the Masters. Do you, speaking of Dead of Night, do we know where the dummy is? I think we should get the dummy. I think we've, I think we've been the ones promoting it. it. I think we've been the ones with the most promotion of it. No, 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 no. We need an evil dummy. <laughs> you need an evil dummy in House of Hammer. I need one at Ballyhoo. Let's let's work out a plan to get the dummy. Let's get Hugo <laughs> back to his rightful home, which is terrorizing another person. But you're right. Like you, you, what you do with Amicus, what you're all doing with House of Hammer, what Adam mm -hmm. did with Val Luton. Thankfully. You, Adam, Smokey, and Ben have all done that in respective forms by creating a preservation row of your own to make sure nobody yep. forgets about these, to make sure my nephew can know that Hammer Horror wasn't just about boobs and blood. It was about other things prior to it becoming about boobs, boobs and blood um, and Christopher <laughs> Lee and Peter Cushing. Mm -hmm. There are so many ways that this work of exposing the underexposed really benefits us as a community and as a society from the artistic point of view. So I couldn't think of a better person to keep talking about Luton with Kev apart from Adam, but everybody's Adam. <laughs> everybody's heard what he's had to say. Let's hear what Kev has to say. Um, not, not, not as a diss as a friendly yeah. passing of the torch. And I want to thank you again for in spite of my lackluster performance today for coming aboard to talk about the body snatcher in all of its glory and to expound upon why you like the film um really quickly pitch yourself pitch what you do pitch the valuable work that you do to people people with film guff it's pretty much lowbrow talk about low rent movies um we tend to just dig around the bargain bins and see what we can find you know it's, it's films that you I've heard of, but mm -hmm. probably never investigated. You know, it, it could be something that's just 20 years old. We're, we kind of surprise ourselves every now and again and go, ah, but that's still modern, isn't it? And then you think, no, there's actually people that can vote that are younger than this film now. Yeah. Um, Life Force. So, Life, Life Force with yeah. you and Steve, uh, with Steve Noble. Yeah. Like yeah. that, that episode, you, Allie and Steve are all in cylinders. And I, or I, I think that there is a, a value to exposing the inner world, like the, 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 the falling through the crack titles, because that's kind of yeah. what Luton is to an extent. He's a fall through the crack yeah. title. Now he's had the benefit of classy filmmakers propping him up, but, and podcasters, but he's still in the cracks compared to Wuthering Heights, Gone with the Wind, Casablanca. Like these are in betweeners, just like when we mm. talked about you and me with Fritz Long which will have already been out by now. It's it's these in-between films that you have to observe because they are a sign of the times. They are a sign of yeah. what is popular and not popular. Life Force is a very valuable film to explore because it talks about a lot of stuff about the production process combined with what was the American audience willing to tolerate. <laughs> um, <laughs> Definitely. <laughs> yeah. And then you also do House of Hammer and uh, yes. Here Lies Amicus. Um, we talked a little bit about Hammer. Tell us again about Here Lies Amicus. Here Lies Amicus. Now, Amicus is a film studio that was set up, say a studio, it's basically two guys. One of them is based in uh, New York and the other one is based in Essex. Um, and they basically set up this operation and 
release films as cheaply as possible and they have some very clever ways of releasing these films and it's one of them things where a lot of people kind of mistake Amicus for Hammer mm-hmm. because they were around at the same time and you know at the time these films just came out nobody was actually taking much notice of who was releasing them it that was never a thing and it they kind of muddied the water because they used a lot of talent that were from the Hammer Studios down to directors, down to Christopher Lee, down to Peter Cushing. Peter Cushing appears in more Amicus films than most of the crew do. Um, so, you know, it's, it's one of them things. Amicus is a very interesting little studio mm-hmm. that does, doesn't just put out horror. Like we said, it did, did a spy film. Danger route. <laughs> Danger route. Yeah, uh, it does, um, like, I don't know how to explain it prehistoric films towards the end it does genre pieces uh, genre pieces like it's 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 very much just basically let's take a stab at that mm -hmm. you know that looks like it'll sell i mean they did a werewolf movie for instance you know and it was a 70s black exploitation werewolf movie i mean you can't really try and get your finger in as many pies as possible can you (laughs) other than doing a a 70s black exploitation werewolf movie yep so yeah yeah, and it's wonderful. And like we said, House of Hammer, covering the entire legacy of Hammer Studios, <laughs> film by film. Yeah. Uh, what do you what do you got coming up by the time this episode comes out? Where do you think you'll be in Horrorland? We or? will be into the earliest fifties. We'll be into the sort of fifty two, fifty three, where they actually enter what we think of now as Brit Noir. And um, they were crime dramas, and it was all cross-pollinated stuff with American studios, um, one in particular, Lippert Productions. And um, you get a very interesting mix of stuff happening there. Uh, some characters that you will spot, and you think, what? Wait, they were in a Hammer film? <laughs> so it's going to be interesting. You, uh, I'm, I'm looking forward to the noir stuff. I think we've got it for about five years on you know the next which will which will be about the good chunk of this year so you'll you'll have yeah 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 plenty of them before you get to the horror yeah i think i think ben's actually planned it out and it works that i think we finish this year on the first crater mass film it might be the start of next year fuck yeah Mm -hmm. Mm, i love that i love hearing that um and additionally i will say that house of hammer if it weren't for that, I don't think we would have tried me, Andrew, and Tyler to do Surrounded by Assholes, the Brooks podcast that we put out. Because mm. I I started this show not having a regular co-host for the reason that I don't know who'd want to do this every other week, but getting on guests that influence us. And you you four keep influencing me constantly to say, let's try something out here. Well, we, 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 we're not going to talk about Hammer. What can we talk about? Mel Brooks. And I think that that's a very valuable thing that you give to the world is providing something for people to listen to and go and say, why don't I try this? Why don't I see what happens? Thanks, man. Yeah. yeah. Um, and on that note, that is going to be it for the Yesteryear Ballyhoo Review this week. We will have Kev back. There's plenty of other films he can talk about. Don't worry. We'll have the Kev Awakens, the last uh, Kevney and rise of Kev Walker. Um, all the all the Abrams films will be applied to Kevin. 
Uh, we may even do prequels where we talk about a time where we didn't met and we were just random strangers on the street. Who knows? Um, but uh, history then, yeah, yeah. We we just have to figure a way to get the prequels in. That's the only <laughs> that's the thing we got to do. Uh, but you can find out more about us on the back end of the show. Coming up, you are going to hear a discussion about Pride and Prejudice with Corinne Westerman. We're going to talk about a film that had a lot of elegance and glamour, courtesy of the studio MGM, and kind of how MGM muddled with stuff too much to a pristine quality, because that's present in this film, but there's also good things about this film. And, of course, please check out YBR Presents Talkin' Tati or Tour de Tati, whatever we decided to call it. Uh, to hear more about the life and times of one Mr. Jacques Tati. But until all of that, until next time, folks, good night. And remember, you'll never get rid of me. 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 This concludes tonight's episode of Yesteryear Ballyhoo Review. Remember, you can follow us on Twitter at Ballyhoo Review and on Instagram at Ballyhoo Review Pod. Our theme was composed by Matty Ghost. Be sure to check out more of his music on Twitch. Our announcer was Henry Jarvis. Look for him on the Real Nerds Podcast. This is Zach signing off. Stay tuned for Jack Benny, who follows immediately after station identification. Yeah.